Five years ago, if someone had told you that in May 2021, Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler would be fighting for the UFC lightweight title, you would have looked at them like they were insane. Oliveira was already considered one of the deadliest submission artists in MMA history, but couldn't seem to settle on a weight class, let alone make the actual weight. And combined with his knack for major mental and tactical lapses, he seemed like a very long shot indeed to ever string together enough wins to challenge for the toughest title in the sport. Meanwhile, Chandler was at the time already Bellator's greatest homegrown star and most accomplished fighter, but he was just barely bouncing back from a three-fight losing streak that had almost certainly damaged his value on the free agent market. All indicators seemed to point to Iron Mike spending the remainder of his career with the UFC's top competitor. What a difference five years make. Good evening and welcome to the Sherdog Radio Preview for UFC 262, Oliveira vs. Chandler. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of Sherdog.com, and with me as always is Keith Schillen. Keith is the executive, uh, executive producer of the Sherdog Radio Network and the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network. Uh, he is the creator of numerous shows for the Sherdog Radio Network, including MMA Past, Present, and Future, and of course, the Schillen and Duffy Show. Keith, going to my time traveler hypothetical here, if that time traveler went on to tell you that by May 2021, Khabib Nurmagomedov would have retired undefeated, oh, and Tony Ferguson never did end up even fighting for an undisputed lightweight title, you would have laughed them right back into whatever time machine they came from. Yet that's the world we find ourselves in. Are you prepared for it? Yeah. I mean, I think your intro was dead on. And this is what I love about the sport. I love these twists and turns, the guys that are got counted out that come back. And, and you know, as far as would he be, be retired or not, that's maybe a little more believable. The being undefeated, maybe a little more believable. But, you know, the fact that him and Tony never fought each other, that Tony Ferguson, you know, up to this point, I mean, it could still happen. We're literally talking about guy, two guys being counted out, so I don't want to count out Tony Ferguson yet. But it, it's so great because as you were saying that, I was thinking about Michael Chandler losing to uh, on their Bellator big card against Brett Primus where he got his, his – you know, his leg kicked out, and that nerve, the nerve from the calf kicks, and he got that dead leg. If you said at that moment that he would, you know, fight for the UFC title shortly after, or think about, you know, Charles Oliveira has had so many mo weird moments, but like even when he seemed like he started to get momentum, then suddenly like he gets pounded out by Paul Felder. You know, if you told me that that guy would not only not only be fighting for the title, but actually be a slight favorite, you know, you said, oh, Charles Oliveira fights for the title, you know, if you went back three years ago, I'd say, oh, there was a light, lightweight matchup on the card and, like, the day before Tony Ferguson tripped over a cord and Charles Oliveira just happened to be on the same card. And he Joe Sotoed it into the, into the you know, title. Sure. But, and I, I don't want to go too far down this path, because we'll talk about it before we talk about the main event, but whoever wins this weekend... To me, at least, I, it's not really going to feel like a fluky champ. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, remember the, like, the Matt Sarah thing? Like, it's an unexpected path to where we got today, but there's nothing that feels fluky about it. Like, you know, uh, Oliveira just all of a sudden stopped doing crazy stuff, stopped missing weight, and started beating elite fighters. Yeah, he finally lived up to the potential that we saw in him because he always had those flashes. 
And every once in a while, he would do something, and you'd be like, oh, wow, like, Charles Oliver is really good. And then also need to have a fight where he looked terrible. As in, you said, you know, no one's going to feel like it's fluky, especially in Charles Oliveira's case, because he's been in the division in the UFC on this long run. Now, as far as Michael Chandler, I won't look at it as fluky. I won't say, oh, he didn't deserve this. I think he's been earning this title shot for the last decade. But there will be some, oh, he got gifted. He only had two fights in the in the UFC. One was against Dan Hooker. Then they'll say he didn't even face the best lightweights. He and we're, This is what we're going to be talking about if he wins the title. This is what we're going to be talking sure. about in the recap, his little preview. They'll be saying, oh, he beat Dan Hooker, who, you know, good, not a great, not very, very top. And then he beat Charles Oliveira. Obviously really good, but was he even the best lightweight in the UFC? I mean, Habib retired, and then Dustin Poirier is decided to fight Connor instead. Like, that'll be the story. So... If, if even if it doesn't feel fluky, Chandler will have more to prove if he wins. You'll be like, uh, yes, I'm excited absolutely. for his next three fights. Like, absolutely. what happens when he fights Poirier? What happens when he fights Gaethje? Yeah, let's let's not go any further down this one because. Well, let me, let me ask you this before. Regardless, and obviously we're only two members of the Sherdog staff, but you know, there's a whole crew of guys who vote on this. The winner of this one, do they jump Dustin Poirier in the rankings? I don't think so. Neither do I. I mean, whoever it is, if you look back. At their last five fights, their last two or three years versus Poirier's, no. But regardless, all of these, this talk, this is why I love the sport. I mean, and I was thinking while you were talking about Michael Chandler and this, and, and Charles Oliveira, this incredible turnaround of their careers, same thing five years ago. Tell me Jan Wachowicz is the light heavyweight champion of the world. I would have laughed at you. That oh. one might be even more shocking. And and then tell me he's defending the title against Glover Teixeira in 2021 and it, was, and it was a warranted title shot, not a end of your career, we need somebody. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, well, hell, we're talking about people now who have, like, changed their trajectory in the last five years. Five years ago, I didn't know who Israel Adesanya was. He was some 6-0 and kickboxer in yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, well, but, yeah, yeah, we always get that but, with yeah, we'll always get those people coming out of nowhere. But, absolutely. yeah, like, Blahovich is another one where I figured the book was written on him. I figured the book was written on Michael Chandler. I mean, I've always wanted to see him come over to the UFC and fight kind of the, the top 10 guys in the UFC. But when he lost two fights to Will Brooks and then Will Brooks came to the UFC and laid an egg. That's a great point. Obviously, I don't believe in MMA math, you know, any further than it's really worth. But at that point, I was like, you know what? It'd still be kind of nice, but I no longer think Michael Chandler's just waiting to come over to the UFC and wreck shop. And yeah. all of a sudden, he's over here preparing to wreck shop. So it's a crazy world. <laughs> it's exciting. This, I'm yeah. excited for this main event. Um, how excited are you for the rest of the card? I, so, you know, one of the narratives is is it, it lost the biggest name, um, you know, deal with this. The biggest name appeal, appeal to the card in, in Nate Diaz getting moved. Sure. We we don't make predictions without tape study. But that's one of the ones I, I, I feel pretty safe to say that Lee and I was going to you know, beat the piss out of Nate Diaz. I feel very confident saying that. Sure. So while that name we lost, the excitement of breaking down film, I don't think we lost that. And then even in the Hermanson and Shabazian, that's a fight I'm very interested in breaking down. We lost that too. When I looked at the, the main card, every single fight is hard to pick. It's a really close to 50-50 on the main card. And I love that. Like I, I look as even though we do this and we break down film, I like having not having no confidence in my picks 
worried that I got it right or wrong. I, I love that. Sure. And I mean, I'll give a little peek behind the curtain here, and this is not meant to be derogatory at all, because both you and I watch a, a hell of a lot more than just the UFC. But there's a reason we don't usually do these kind of previews for, say, a, a Bellator card. Because once you get south of about the top three fights, there's a bunch of you know minus 600 favorites where it's like, what's the point in putting in the film study, you know, unless we were doing a betting show and, you know, we were trying to find tiny bits of value somewhere. And that's not what we're really here for. Yeah, we're not that. And, and when, you look not, at a, when you look at a Bellator show and there's 10 prelims fights, probably eight of them, you know who they're rooting for. Good promotion. Yeah, or, and I, I don't mean like. And for, but that, who they expect to win. What, that, yeah. In weird fix. I mean, in the actual no. who they're putting their promotion behind. Mm-hmm. That's not the case a lot of times, in, in the, and especially not in the main card. Yeah. Even the undercard is matched pretty well because on paper, it's not super hot. You've got some people that are on, you know, losing streaks, some people that are below 500 in the UFC, but those people still need fights. Unless the UFC is going to cut every single fighter as soon as they lose two fights, people who've lost two in a row still need to fight someone. At least here they're matching them against people that are roughly on the same level. And, you know, there's some interest to it. So I think it's well-matched, even if it's not their strongest pay-per-view offering. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, you ready to jump into these prelims? Uh, I am. First up at UFC 262 is a lightweight matchup between two gentlemen on their uh, second jaunt with the UFC. It is Christos Giagos versus Sean Soriano. Uh, Giagos, the 31-year-old Californian, is 18-8 and eight overall. He is 4-4 four and four across multiple stints with the promotion. He fought most recently back in December at UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neil, where he took a dominant uh, unanimous decision over Carlton Minus. He'll be taking on uh, Soriano, welcoming, welcoming him back to the UFC. Uh, Soriano, the uh, 31-year-old Rhode Islander, is 14-6 and six overall. He is... 0-3 in his previous UFC uh, run, which was all the way back in 2014 and 2015. He has fought his way back to the UFC through a lot of the major feeder leagues, uh, Legacy, CES, CFFC, even a stint over in uh, Abu Dhabi Warriors, where he knocked out fellow former UFC fighter Noad Lahat. Odds on this one are, are among the wider ones on the card. Giagos is out there at minus 230 or so. You can get Soriano at plus 190 on the comeback. Uh, I am glad that Sean Soriano's back in the UFC. His problem his first time around was dealing with grapplers. I mean, in hindsight, losing to Tatsuya Kawajiri and Chaz Skelly, you know, not the most embarrassing thing in the world. Uh, Charles Rosa, obviously, I mean, he's a grappler by preference, even if most of what lost in the fight to Rosa was, was on the feet until he got choked out at the end. And, I mean, that stylistically tells me, okay, maybe matched up appropriately, he could, he could have a, a decent run in the second time around. But Christos Giagos is not it. And it's, he's definitely not it for Soriano to be back in the UFC, a weight class up from where he was. Uh, Giagos isn't a perfect fighter, but he is physically a brute. And... You know, like, in the X's and O's of this game, like, I, I will leave that to you, but, the, like, the dynamic and the way it looks just makes me think of a spark, 
Spike Carlisle or early Diego Sanchez type, where he's very aggressive uh, right off the bat. Uh, both his striking and his wrestling really run off of his athleticism and physical power. That, for me, is like spells trouble for, for Sean Soriano. Uh, I haven't seen all of Soriano's fights between his first UFC stints and this one, but I've seen several of them. And athleticism and physical strength are still not pluses for him. I don't think he's going to be able to keep Giagos off him. And yeah, just uh, give me Christos Giagos in this one. I'm going to take a take him in a dominant uh, decision where he probably be- beats him up on the feet and also takes him down and beats him up on the ground for extended periods. Damn you, brother. Sorry, sorry, sorry Rhode Island. He's <laughs> Rhode Island's own. We're from, not only are we from the same state, we're from the same city. Oh. I mean, come on, Sean Soriano. So let me ask you this question. When we talk about the you know very prestigious Rhode Island wrestling uh, history, I'm mean, sorry, Rhode Island uh, MMA history, Sean Soriano is 0-3 in the UFC. Mm-hmm. Is he still in the top three all-time greatest fighters from Rhode Island? Well, I am rebooting the Sherdog series Greats of the States, so it'll be a while since I just started with uh, Alabama last week. Yeah. Um, but I have the feeling uh, he's up, he might be on the edge of the top three, honestly. you know. I, I mean, it's got to be Andre Sigmatuck and, uh, and Eric Spicely and him. Yeah, so your top two are guys who are below 500 in the UFC. Yeah. I mean, there is this one fighter from Rhode Island that's been undefeated for, like, like 13 years or something like that. But uh, that guy didn't know. Oh, I mean, I, I'm as big a, a shill the thrill fan as, <laughs> as anybody, but I try to go on what they've done in the last five years, you know? Oh, okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> We're talking all the time. Yeah. All right, so, yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't play favorites here, but listen, when we get a guy once every three years thrown in the UFC from Rhode Island, like I'm rooting for Sean Soriano. I mean, good one. We're a little state. We're the little, we're the little midget of the, uh, of the United States, like come on, Sean. So I'll start with Sean. He he's a he's a pretty technical boxer. He has a high guard. He's got pretty decent output. His hands, I would say, are I would say fast, but it's got a little bit of speed to it. His straight right is pretty accurate, uh, though he does look for it too much. He got that what I like to say the Dan Henderson in him. Like he does, he, you know, his right hand side again good, and then he he leads with it, and he when. You know, the best thing is to hide that and then unleash it when it's open. I like that he goes to the body. You can tell he's got a lot of rounds in the boxing ring based on his style. Uh, throws a lot of kicks, targets calf kicks. So he's, I, I should say, instead of boxing, he's more of a Muay Thai kickboxer. He can throw naked kicks. And at this level, I don't know if Christian Osiagos has got to make him pay for that, but there's obviously guys in the division that could. While he likes to press forward. He hates to be pushed on his back foot. He he doesn't like getting backed up. He does he does one of these things where you see a little panic in him when the guy's coming forward. He's not handle pressure very well, and he backs up on the straight line. He even though he doesn't have a wrestling background, you know he's at Stanford MMA. He's around wrestlers all the time, so he'll sneak in a takedown. Um, but his entries are weak. He's not he's not a strong powerful wrestler. Weak take take on defense himself. If he gets on top, you can see he, he's he's well rounded. Like he's got a decent uh, top pressure, though he can be a little sloppy sometimes chasing submissions. 
move that over to uh, Giagos, high volume guy. He's I've been really taken away, guys. I, you know, I used to say this guy stance switches a lot. I'm trying to do it to the people who do it constantly, and he's one of the guys who actually does it constantly. He he's very aggressive on the feet, like almost kind of wild. He will overthrow his strikes at times, and he loads up on everything. But what I like about him is he disguises his entries in his striking pretty well. He mixes it in pretty good, and he looks for takedowns a lot. Like that is where he wants to. He wants to get the fight to the ground. If he gets you down, heavy ground and pound, aggressive ground and pound. He is a Brazilian black belt. We've seen him in, in a lot of fights, especially his last fight against Caltaminas. He'll jump on your back. He he does fade late though. Like that is a huge thing we saw in all of his UFC fights. I'm going to give him a pass on his last fight. I mean, he took the fight on three days' notice. So I'm going to give him a pass to that, but he has faded in another fight. So it, it, I am not nearly as confident as you are. And that not praising Sean Sariano, it's more of I'm not that confident in Chris Osiagos. But he should win this fight, especially with the advantage in the wrestling. Sariano is such a likable guy. I mean, you see him, he's Con- I mean, of all the all the fighters at Stanford MMA, he is always constantly in guys' corners. I mean, you'll see him in Kamar Usman's corner. You'll see him in – I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if Sean Sarrell fights in the main event and suddenly he's in the corner of, of Michael Chandler in the main event. Like, that's just – he must be – like, everyone loves this guy. So he must be a real good student of the game that the people always constantly use him to corner guys. That says some people are better explaining – Things than actually executing, and I think that's kind of the case with Soriano. I'm really glad he, he's he's back in the UFC, but I think uh, I think Jagos is going to take him down, write him out to victory. So give me Jagos, and I'll take him by unanimous decision. Next up, we step down to the featherweight division, where Kevin Aguilar will attempt to right the ship as he welcomes Tucker Lutz to the UFC. Kevin Aguilar, the 32-year-old from East Texas, is 17-4 and four overall. He is 2-3 and three since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, but more specifically, he won his first two fights in the UFC and is currently on a three-fight losing streak. Those three coming against Dan Ige, Zubaira Tukugov, and most recently, Charles Rosa, last June at UFC on ESPN, I versus uh, Calvillo. He'll be taking on Lutz. The 26-year-old from Baltimore uh, is 11-1 overall. He is making his debut in the UFC off of two appearances last fall on the Contender Series. Uh, he won both by decision. Uh, one was, well, actually one was in September, which I guess is technically summer. And then he fought again in November, uh, taking a unanimous decision over Sherrod Blackledge. Odds in this one actually favor the newcomer just a bit. He is out there at minus 120. Uh, You can get Aguilar at even money as the slight underdog, plus 100. Keith, it's two guys with uh, three appearances on the Contender Series between them. Tell me a little bit about them and who wins and how. Yeah, so it's funny because with Lutz being the favorite, and I understand that's based on what they've done recently. You know, Lutz is coming off two wins on the contender series, Aguilar, obviously they're in the UFC, so it's a different level of competition, but he's on a three-fight losing streak. But when they entered the contender series, Aguilar was viewed much higher, at least in my opinion, 
is his prominence to coming in the UFC. And it's funny how in just a short time, the roles have changed. Now, no, Les is not a major favorite, as you said. I just thought that was interesting. Now, as far as Aguilar, he's not a great athlete. I would say he, for the weight, he's not slow, but for the weight class, he might be slow. He's more of a power guy, but he hits really hard. That's that's his game. He sits down on his punches. When he's at distance, he almost leaps in to his punches to land shots. He, while that obviously leaping into punches and you, you know you're throwing your whole body into it. If you land, you could put someone out. You also overreach when you do that, and it, you're easy to time coming in. As you know, really elite striker could do that and put you out. He loads up on everything. Like he is constantly looking to land the perfect shot, knock you out with one blow, and that's that's really his game all the way back to the the LFA days. Hard calf kicks, but he's also open to calf kicks himself because he's so heavy on his on his front uh, foot. And it's weird because in his last fight, I thought he was doing pretty well against Charles Rosa, especially about midway on. But he started too slow and he was too impatient, and that's why I thought he lost the fight, even though. You know, you could easily score, but I mean, I think when I'm talking about the judges, that's why he lost on the judges' scorecard. Now, move over to Lutz. Well, he's won two fights in the contender series. Before that, he fought really low-level fight, you know, fighters to coming in. That was one of the things I talked about on my preview, you know, last summer. But even the guys he beat on the contender series, they weren't they weren't one of the guys that I was really excited moving forward. So I'm still I'm still concerned about him. Like I don't know how developed he is. He is an aggressive pressure f- fighter. He just marches forward, but he is flat footed and plotted, like like a little plotting. Like when he, even though he comes forward, um, he more chases the opponent instead of cutting him off. He's not very tactical. He's very raw, and that's part of that fight in a low level. and And I guess that's good to get your rounds in and get you know facing. You know, you don't want to fight sharks all the time. So he's raw, but he does have some power. But similar to Aguilar. He telegraphs a lot of things, be loading up on everything. And he makes the mistakes of squaring up a lot of times, which makes him, you know, obviously a bladed target compared to a squared off target. You you know, it's like doubling your size. It's much easier to hit. He pulls his head straight back is another, you know, mistake he makes. Uh, As far as the grappling, he's a very physically strong guy. You see that in his game. Good takedown attempts, good reactionary double. When he's in on his opponent, he's in close. That's where he wants to be. He stays on his opponent like glue. He's a, he's he's really truly willing to grind out a, a decision. He's willing to just take you down, kind of sit in your guard and, and and waste the round away. But on the regional scene, I saw sometimes where a scrambling student he got put on his back and he really struggled to get up. Now, as far as the prediction goes, three years from now, I'm definitely taking Lutz. I just don't know if he's ready right now for the UC level. Aguilar has been a big disappointment to me in, in the UFC. I, I didn't expect him to be a UFC champion or anything like that, but I could see him as a top 15, top 20-ish guy. Like That's where I was kind of viewing him. And obviously, he hasn't lived up to that. I mean, we, I had him on the cut list. I can't remember if you did, but I had him on the cut list last. I think we both did. I think we put him on the cut list. However, despite the, the disappointment in him, he still has faced a higher level competition. Now, he's going to really need to keep his distance. So those lunging punches will really set up takedowns from Lutz. But if he can keep his distance and stop some takedowns, which he showed in the regional scene he can do, I think he'll land the heavier, more powerful shot. I think he's a little more polished striker. 
and I think he wins a decision. So this is my first upset pick. I'm going to take the more veteran and Kevin Aguilar. I'm with you on this one. Uh, Yeah, Aguilar has definitely disappointed compared to the expectations he had when he entered the UFC. But frankly, the the losses to Ige and to Kugov, those are both top 10 quality guys. Like, I don't know without looking whether they're literally in the top 10 this moment. But in terms of talent and accomplishment, they are top 10 quality guys. Like, you know, you mentioned that you thought of Aguilar as a guy who might settle in around the 15 or the 20. So even if he had hit his ceiling, according to you, he probably wouldn't have beaten a Danny Gay or a Zabira Tukugov. The, the concerning fight to me was the Rosa fight because, yeah, for good big portions of the fight, he did not look like the Kevin Aguilar we were used to. I don't know if he was afraid of losing his job and just wanted to really take a different approach. But that felt to me like a fight that with a few adjustments he would have won. And Rose is better than anybody that Lutz has faced, including his appearances on the Contender Series. I, I agree with you. Like, Lutz might have a higher ceiling, but I don't even know what that ceiling is. The, the fights he had in Baltimore just really don't tell us much. You know, and if you look at the records of some of those dudes he beat, you know, like you said, it, it's good for him to get the rounds in. You don't want to fight Sharks every time. Uh, but this will be the closest to a Shark that Lutz has really faced. And I agree with you that, that Aguilar is going to be too much too soon. I mean, there's every possibility that Aguilar might catch him with one of his crazy uh, strikes in the first round. And if not put him away, at least put away the round uh, convincingly enough and change the tenor of the fight enough that that kind of determines how it goes. I'm not going to pick the finish. I mean, Lutz is on, uh, I think, an 11 fight winning streak. He lost his first fight by knockout and then he's won everything since. But give me Aguilar by, by decision. We now come to the first of three women's flyweight bouts on the card as Gina Mazzani and Priscilla Cachoeira meet in a clash of women with their backs somewhat against the wall in terms of their UFC runs. Uh, Mazzani, the 32-year-old Alaskan, is 7-4 and four overall. She is 2-4 and four in the UFC. Uh, most recently, she dropped from Bantamweight to Flyweight and took a third-round uh, TKO over Rachel Ostevich last November. Uh, she'll be meeting Cachoeira. The 32-year-old Brazilian is 9-3 and three overall. She is 1-3 and three in the UFC. Uh, she, of course, stepped up in one of the all-time slaughters in UFC matchmaking history as she debuted against Valentina Shevchenko in Shevchenko's flyweight debut and got absolutely massacred. She then dropped two more to Molly McCann and Luana Carolina. She ended up uh, winning in her fourth try, knocking out uh, Shayna Dobson in just 40 seconds uh, last February at UFC Fight Night Felder versus Hooker in all likelihood saving her job. Uh, despite that, she is a moderate underdog here. Cachoeira is plus 175. Mazzani minus 210 or minus 215 as the favorite. Keith, who have you got in this one? Well, before I give my prediction, I got to give a cheap little plug. Make sure you head over to the Shurtuck YouTube page constantly this week and, and check out all the coverage. And one of the coverage you'll see is Gina Mazzani was the one of the guests on this week's MMA Past, Present, and Future, which, as we're recording right now, is not posted, but I expect by the time people listen to this, it probably will be posted. we got a pretty loaded lineup. we got El Guapo himself, Bass Rutten, Gina Mazzani, and your boy from Houston, Mon Martinez, who's also fighting this weekend. So it's a, it's a pretty good... Uh, I think it's a pretty good show, and I, th- I had a lot of fun uh, did, filming did, that one. Did Mona call you, sir? 
Yeah, I told him he didn't have to. Oh, I told I, I told him like every time you say Sir Mana, I look behind me for my dad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really nice kid. Anyway. Yeah, he is. He really, he really is. Uh, and he, and he, and he watches the recap, which is cool too. Yep. Uh, another thing I want to point out, I want to shout out a guy that's been on this network before, done the, sh- done the recap with us. Actually, done one of the previews with us, Craig Allen, who tweeted out, and I love this. Gina Mazzani and Priscilla Cachoeira share the same birthday, even down to the year. So there can be uh, only one. Yeah, the battle of the same birthdays. So uh, shout out to if that if that stat is right, shout out to Craig Allen. If that stat is wrong, then screw Craig Allen. Go after him. Don't go after me. Uh, Mazzani, Mazzani's a southpaw. She has very high output, constantly pressing forward. Has a Awkward, herky-jerky style that she's kind of made work. She, her striking style is a little bit similar to her, her fiance, Tim Elliott. Like it's, it's ugly, but it's unique and it works for them. It's unorthodox, but it works for them. Uh, she lacks a little bit of head movement, and her boxing needs a lot of improvement. But we've seen improvement in her kicking game, especially in her last fight against Rachel Osovich. And she she hurt Rachel Osovich twice with a liver kick, finished her off with a liver kick. Those are good signs. But the other thing about her that really showed the last one is just her ability to get the fight to the ground. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pause for a second. I have no idea what I did with my notes on Gina Mazzani. Hold on a second. Sure. Sorry. I'm going to start right off right now. Um. She's she's a strong girl, but she's she recently dropped down for the weight. She's got a size advantage like Cachoeira, and she's going to use that advantage in the clinch where she's comfortable. She's going to get to her body locks. She has a good trips against Rachel Osovich. She's very strong. Uh, while her top control can get a little sloppy, but she had a position where she was looking to like go for a north south choke on Rachel Osovich, and Rachel Osovich somehow used that position to get the back, which was actually an insane move by Rachel Osovich. That probably isn't going to happen to Valentina Shevchenko if they were in the same position. Um, but what I like about her is that she has strong cardio. Like that fight went deeper on, and it was a very grappling heavy fight, and she didn't slow down. She was going just as hard in the third round, and then she get a finish. So you like that. Now moving over to Cachoeira. Cachoeira is very aggressive on the feet. She just marches forward. Doesn't doesn't cut off her opponent when you know they try to avoid her she more chases but when she gets in her range she just goes like berserker wild kind of like like the old vanderlei silver and pride just i'm gonna stand right here and i'm gonna throw back and forth wildly and, and i'm gonna trust that my shots are harder than yours now i looked at her fight against shannon dobson like suddenly the narrative about priscilla catcher is if she touches you she puts you out and I don't think that. Like when I look at her, I see a girl who's throwing wild strikes, and even though they're wild, they're on punches. There's no technique. She the hands are coming from low angles. Her chin is high in the air. She's a big target, and I kind of feel like she just landed a perfectly placed shot. And, you know, I don't like saying this, but it looked a lot like luck to me. Then, you know, suddenly she's this gigantic puncher in the females' divisions. DC pointed out in the fight right before that she almost doesn't even look at her target when she throws. As far as the ground, she will go for a takedown, but isn't much of her offensive wrestler at all. If she gets it down, 
I would say she's a decent grappler. Like she's not spectacular, but she can. Like I wouldn't be shocked if she took Mazzani down and, and controlled her on the ground. Uh, and the other thing about Cachoeira is you can't challenge her hard, even in fights that she. I mean, like her, her fight against uh, Luana. I mean, she beat. She got lost like thirty twenty five. But she was still throwing hammers, throwing haymakers in in the third round. And then obviously the Valentina Shevchenko. She she had every chance to get out of that fight, and she I mean she was kept moving. I mean I'm not saying it was not an extremely late stoppage. It was, but I mean she was still trying to fight, even though she was grossly. I mean one of the biggest mismatches of all time. As far as prediction goes, I'm gonna go with Mazzani. She isn't she isn't um, as explosive as Catcher is, but she's I think she's more technically sound. I think she might be stronger. She's going to have to avoid an early onslaught barrage where, where Catchaway is just going at her crazy. And she actually mentioned that in our interview. Um, but I think she's going to take it. This is exactly how she broke down the fight, and I kind of agree. With I think she's going to take over around you know, late first round, second round, particularly on the ground wrestling. And I think she gets a decision victory. So give me Gina Mazzani to extend a, a winning streak to two. Man, I was really, really close to picking the upset on this one. If, if Priscilla Cachoeira were any better at any one thing, I probably would have just like, like pulled the lever for it. Because I'm not quite a, as firmly behind Mazzani as you are yet. Her problem at Bantamweight was that she had a game that really needed her to be the better wrestler and or like bigger, stronger woman. And when she wasn't, it, it was just ugly. Like you look at the women she lost to, they're, they're all they're all good fighters. Sarah McMahon, Lena Landsberg, Macy Chasson, Julia Avila. What do they all have in common? They're all big, big, strong women. All I know about Mazzani at 125 is that she could out wrestle Rachel Ostovich. Like that's not enough for me to get fully behind her yet. And like I say, I I came close to picking the upset here, but Kashuera, I it's. I mean, it's just, uh, and I, I feel bad saying this. I don't, like, mean to sound mean, but it's just like a contest for who's the worst flyweight in the UFC. Like, she beat Shayna Dobson, so that pushes Shayna Dobson down one. You know, like, just, I mean, Shayna Dobson is is literally, like, below 500 as a fighter. Not just in the UFC, but she's, like, literally below 500, period, as, as a fighter. Uh, and before that, she just hadn't shown many signs of life in her other fights. If if Cachoeira was just a little better boxer so that she transferred, for a little more of that wild power into actual impact on the chin. Uh, if she were a little more technically sound as a wrestler, because I, I think she'll be at least as physically strong as Mazzani and is probably a little better athlete, but Mazzani is just such a better school wrestler. Just if, if Cashewar were just a little better at any of these things, I'd feel comfortable going for the upset. I certainly wouldn't see value on Mazzani as like a greater than two to one favorite, but I'm with you. Uh, I think I am cautiously believing that Mazzani has a new life at flyweight. And if that starts with, you know, ushering Rachel Ostovich and now Priscilla Cachoeira out of the UFC, then, you know, you got to start somewhere. Give me Gina Mazzani by decision. Next up, it is the middleweights as Jordan Wright takes on Jamie Pickett. Wright, the 29-year-old Californian uh, who is called the Beverly Hills Ninja, or at least who calls himself the Beverly Hills Ninja, is 11-1 and with one no contest. 
Uh, he's one and one in the UFC. He won his debut uh, slicing and dicing Ike Villanueva to a doctor stoppage in about 90 seconds last August. He then came back and got absolutely obliterated by Joaquin Buckley early in the second round of their uh, meeting at UFC 255. Uh, he did not come to the UFC through Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he, in fact, lost there to Anthony Hernandez, but that was overturned uh, later once uh, Hernandez tested positive for cannabis. He'll be taking on Pickett. The man who goes by the Night Wolf is 32 years old. He's 11-5 and five overall. He's 0-1 in the UFC, and he uh, lost to Tafan and Chukwi, in fact, who was busy just last week at UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neil in December. That marked his entry finally to the UFC after, an I don't know if it's unprecedented, but a rare three shots on Dana White's Contender Series, uh, and third time was the charm for him. He beat Jonovan Pati uh, last August, which punched his ticket to, to the UFC. This one is a literal pick at the moment. Both gentlemen are out there minus 110. So if you have strong feelings about this fight, the value is there for you. Uh, Keith, not to, to kick the ball straight to you again, but if we've got a guy who's been on the Contender Series three, three times, best believe <laughs> I'm sending it to you first. Yeah, well, first of all, can we give a shout out to his manager who got him this many opportunities? Uh, like, good for that guy. I, I'm, I'm not sure which team he's with, but... I don't know if it's like Jason House or Ali or you know whoever he's with. Like, good job for uh, getting him that many chances. Uh, Jordan Wright, I'll start with Wright. He's he's big for the weight class. I mean, he's a middleweight that at one time was actually a heavyweight. Yeah, more light heavy for most of everybody. He actually did fight at heavyweight. He, I said this on his contender series matchup. I'm still saying it. This is a guy who feasted on low level competition. And even his single win in the UFC was Ike Villanueva, who isn't a great win. And I know, I know that's a Houston boy, but Ike Villanueva is a glorified regional fighter. Jordan Wright has a karate background, and despite constantly throwing spinning attacks, he's not a great athlete. Like he keeps his hands low, and he's not that technically. He keeps his, I mean, you know, he's karate style, so he has his hands low. Um, but he doesn't have like this elite head movement where that works. He's not Stephen Thompson. He doesn't flow like Stephen Thompson or, or, or these or even like a younger Leota Machida. And his chin might be an issue. I mean, he he was on the contender series. He was you know they didn't count this as a loss because of Anthony Hernandez likes to smoke weed. But Anthony Hernandez knocked him out quickly. His last fight is what really worrisome. Not that he was knocked out because. We know what Joaquin Buckley can do to someone if he connects, but the damage he took before the knockout. I mean, we were calling for the fight to be stopped in between rounds. Like, there was no reason. And and we talked about this on the recap. There was no reason for Jordan Wright to go back out there just to get blue. I mean, he, he, he looked like he knew it was coming, too. Um, offensively, he lacks power. His best position, even though he's a karate striker, and we said this last time we talked about him, this is plum clutch. If he gets the plum... He he's pretty effective. At that it's weird for like a you know a Beverly Hills ninja guy to be a, you know kind of a a dirt dog inside like you know get in there laying in elbows laying in knees. I'd say he's an okay wrestler, not not a you know strong wrestler, but I've seen him get the fight to the ground and kind of like the same thing I, I'm gonna say 
when he gets the ground, it's like okay submission threat. Like he's probably not going to submit you. He's probably not going to submit Jim Pickett, but he does have some submissions on his career. Move over to Pickett. Well, Pickett to me is like the definition of contender series guy. One because he fought on it three times, but just what you get from him, he's just okay. And 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 what I mean by that is. Obviously, there's guys I'm really high on that came out of the contender series. But for the most part, most guys, when I look at them in the contender series, like, they're just okay. They're, you know, the lower level guys, the lower, you know, the worst of the group is, you know, mid, mid-tier regional guy. But, you know, the other guys are just outside the UFC. And then, like, most of the guys, about 90% of them are going to be low-level UFC guys. Like, that's why I view Pickett. Like, he's... A low-level UFC guy at best, and he's he's very inconsistent. If and he's in he's inconsistent not in wins and losses, but more of what we see when he fights. There's times uh, he, he always has pretty fast hands. I'll give him that, but sometimes he's a high output striker. I see him go out there. He's very aggressive. He's a high output striker, but then other times he can be really low output. He kind of stands back. I see him once where he constantly switching stances, really flowing. And other times he's flat-footed and stationary. When he's flowing, that's when he's best. He's best when he's using his movement to avoid strikes, but then exploding forward and forcing the guy back, using pressure instead of being staying back, stationary, and then getting forced on his back foot. His, he's got decent pop. I'll give him that. Not Urshadden, but I'd say plus power. Not a guy that possesses one punch, like he's not going to knock you out. But he'll throw a flying knee, show some athleticism. Not much of his kick in the kicking game either. Doesn't really check kicks. He... And the other thing that was really surprising me, Puna Soriano, Pickett really struggled with his power. But then he went against Tafan Chukwi, who probably, I would say, similar realm as Soriano power, maybe even a little harder hitter. And he had no problems in the Chukwe. Now, he lost that fight, but like it wasn't the power of Chukwe that were really... Like, didn't seem stunned a lot. Pickett in the grappling, this is where I feel most comfortable with him. I think he's a pretty underrated grappler. I think he's actually probably a better grappler than he is a striker. He's good at chaining the takedowns together. He's good at just being a, um, consistent to the takedown. You know, like, knowing that takedowns may be part of the game. Even if he misses it, he'll go back to it later in the round. Gets on top, good ground pound. He only has one submission win on his wreck, I believe. He, he might have more than that now. Um, nope, he's still, yes, yeah, so he only has one submission, but he still threatens with submissions while he's on the ground. Uh, but I don't like that he'll lose some position, look for the submission, and if he ends up on Bonnie, he really struggles. Now, I've said a lot about this fight. I'm not high on either guy. Both guys came to contention. I'm not high. But I'm intrigued by it because they're in the same room. I, I'm intrigued by it as the same with these guys with a co-main event or main event in LFA. Like, I'm intrigued because, yeah, they're kind of similar. It appears to me that, like I said, Pickett is a low-level UFC fighter. I don't view right at that point right now. I look at him as more like a mid-card regional fighter. Like, that's how low I am on him. So I think Pickett's going to outbeat him on the feet and outbeat him on the ground. So give me Pickett and give me him by decision. I love that you uh, talked about, you know, Wright's kind of, you know, lack of uh, elite movement compared to someone like Stephen Thompson, because when he's not 
getting into his underratedly dirty game, like in the clinch, because of course that's what he really busted up Ike being the wave with was a, a knee from the clinch that, you know, I, I love Ike, but you know, he's been in a lot of fights and at this point a stiff, a stiff breeze does make him start bleeding over, over the eyebrows. But when he's, when Wright's not doing that, <laughs> He looks like some like you know local fighter like trying to simulate Stephen Thompson for somebody in his gym, like basically. Uh, <clears throat> I, I I don't have anything to add here. You, you've done a, a extremely comprehensive breakdown of their relative uh, skill sets, but I do like that you pointed out kind of how I don't know if it's underrated because nobody really talks much about him at all. Period. But certainly. It's unsung is uh, Pickett's ground game where, you know, he, he is threatening with positional advances and submissions and he ends up, you know, getting ground and pound stoppages, I think, just because he's keeping people, uh, you know, off balance and uh, on the defensive against a possible submission. I like him to beat uh, Jordan right here. I think uh, he's even though Wright is, you know, like you say, a former heavyweight former light heavyweight I, I think pickett's gonna have the the strength advantage when they get hands on each other uh i think pickett's definitely better on the ground i don't think it's a huge strength for either of them but i actually trust pickett's gas tank a little more if it goes into the later rounds especially if pickett has been wrestling uh just to kind of break up the endless parade of decisions that i'm literally signing myself up to watch from cage side this saturday I'm going to say Pickett wears him down, gets him out of there, and just kind of shows that he's UFC level and perhaps Wright isn't. So give me Pickett by a third-round TKO on the ground. The UFC 262 prelims take us back to the women's flyweight division for a meeting between Andrea Lee and Antonina Shevchenko. Lee, the 32-year-old Texan by way of Louisiana, is 11-5 overall. She is 3-3 three three in the UFC, and just like an inning of baseball, it is three up, three down, as she won her first three fights in the UFC, but is currently on a three-fight losing streak against Joanne Calderwood, Lauren Murphy, and Roxanne Modafferi. Uh, obviously, with her back against the wall, at least to a certain extent, she will be taking on Shevchenko. Uh, the older sister of your UFC flyweight champion is 36. She is 9-2 and two overall. She is 3-2. and two since joining the UFC out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series, and she has alternated wins and losses throughout that time, beating Ji Yeon Kim, losing to Roxanne Mataferi, beating Lucy Pudilova, losing to Caitlin Chukagian, and most recently, last November, defeating Ariane Lipsky by a late second-round TKO. Odds on this one do slightly favor Shevchenko. She is minus 125, where you can get Lee at plus 105, plus 108, uh, I see some general, uh, like some some general parallels between these two. Obviously, they're both uh, Muay Thai style kickboxers by uh, by preference. In fact, both of them had kickboxing experience before they crossed over to MMA. Though Shevchenko's was a good bit more extensive, and despite that, uh, they're both slightly underrated. As, as wrestlers, they, they can, you know, somewhat handle themselves on the ground. And more importantly, they've both shown willingness to lean on their ground game to win them the fight if they need to. The, neither of these women is just going to, like, go out on her shield over principle. They're, they both have shown themselves willing to get the win any way they can. Uh, <clears throat> I usually peruse 
uh, Tom Feely's official SureDog previews if I have time before uh, you know we talk. And one thing that I, I love that he said about Antonina Shevchenko is that she's basically Valentina without the elite athleticism. Like, it's not to say that Antonina Shevchenko isn't a good athlete. I mean, she, she's, a, she's a perfectly fine athlete, but Valentina is an absolutely elite athlete. You know, she's strong as an ox. She's explosive. She's fast. She's flexible. You know, she strikes you as someone, like, if she didn't want to fight, she could be a gymnast or just about any other sport she wanted. Uh, Shevchenko doesn't have quite that, but the rest of the same game is there in broad strokes. Like, their striking looks about the same. Uh, you know, Shevchenko, well, Antonina, you know, shares the uh, ability and the willingness to get the fight to the ground. Uh, she's taking on Lee. Lee doesn't uh, fight quite as athletically and explosively as, as she comes across. And I'm not sure why it is. Like, like her, like her fights always come across like just end up being much more grindy win or lose than I expect them to be. I I think the odds are right on with these two. Just I, they, they feel extremely evenly matched to me. And Lee's last three fights. I mean, they've all been against good opponents. Her fight against Joanne Calderwood was a little, it was a literal title eliminator. Like Calderwood earned a title shot off of that fight. She didn't end up getting it because she ended up taking that stay busy fight against Jennifer Maya and losing. But Calderwood, by beating Andrea Lee, earned a shot at Valentina Shevchenko's title. Like, that's how close Lee was. Uh, all three of those fights, Calderwood, Murphy, Mataferi, they were all razor close. You go to MMA decisions, at least some of the media scored all three of those fights for Lee. And against Murphy, which was here in Houston last year, literally all of the media scored it for Lee. I'm not saying that means everything. But on a night of fights that was UFC 247 last February that was plagued by some of the worst judging in recent memory in the UFC, it's worth noting, like, Andrea Lee, by all rights, should not be on a three-fight losing streak. And in fact, she has two losses to women who put themselves into the immediate title picture by just barely beating Andrea Lee or by not beating Andrea Lee. Uh, just based on that, like... I feel as though Lee has more momentum and her game is in better shape than it appears uh, from, from her record. I also don't know how much uh, Shevchenko is still improving at this point. I think she may just be what she is at 36, which is it's pretty good. But just give me, give me Andrea Lee in this one. I think uh, she breaks the skid. She gets herself kind of right back into the thick of things. Uh, it's still a wide-open division. And even though she just lost three in a row, you know, she, she might just be that many again from being right back in the title picture. But give me Andrea Lee uh, by decision in this one. Well, my I have one major beef with you on this pick. And my major beef is you said when you have time to read Tom's piece, you do. Well, make time, Ben. Because <laughs> it's one, they're fantastic. And two, we're going to always support fellow Sherdog staff members. Uh, anyways, back to, back to this fight. Um, yeah, I'm very intrigued by this fight. This is one of the ones on the prelims. I'm, it, it, I'm most interested in one because I don't know where either fighter stands. And I, and then I really don't know what, how I feel about either fighter. 
and I think this will answer some questions, especially about Shevchenko. Now, Shevchenko was one of the people that I was extremely excited coming out of the contender series. I, I Sean Bitter from Cage Side Press messaged me about an article after the season that Shevchenko was on and had a bunch of, it was me and a couple of media members about the contender series. And it was a couple of questions. I think one of the questions was something like, who's your favorite female coming out of the season? Or might've been your favorite fighter, like, you know, fighter overall that could do some damage in the division. And I really liked it. Antoinette. Like I was super high on her. Obviously I, I might have overrated what I thought her grappling game was, but um, I wonder if she's turning the corner now because she looked much better in the last fight. So on the feet, I think she's one of the best strikers in all of MMA. I mean, we see that with her kickboxing experience and history and champions. I mean, she's got the credentials. She gets more of a kickboxing credentials than her sister does. But she is one-dimensional. That's what you have to point out there. But on the feet, she marches forward. She does very good at darting in and out of range. Her accuracy is really good. She only needs a very small opening to land a shot. She'll she'll jump in and throw a combination. Her her straight left right hook combination is so so good. That's like her go to thing. She can work behind a jab. She's you know she's a longer fighter. Kicks everywhere like legs, high kicks, switch kick to the head, uh, question mark kick, keep kicks. Like she's got the full arsenal. She's she's not bad in the clinch either. I mean, that's what you get when a you know Muay Thai kickboxer. She can land knees and elbows, but her wrestling up into her last point, and I mean the Kayla Chikagian fight was the one that always shows out to me. Her wrestling was nothing short of terrible. She couldn't get up from bottom, and this was really surprising considering she was raised in judo like her sister. I mean, her, and her sister, and, and I know obviously. Just because they're sisters doesn't mean one's not better. This is, we got example after example of one fighter being an elite fighter and the other one being much lower level. I mean, we we could go over that list forever. However, in her last fight, suddenly she had a ground game and she won on the ground against uh, Lipsky. So maybe that's turning the corner. Maybe she's showing purpose. And in fairness to her, she hasn't had it. You know, she's she you know she's up there in age, based on how long she was kickboxing. But her time in the sport of MMA was very short. So she is kind of learning as she goes. As far as Lee goes, she's a high-output striker. She's an outfighter on the feet. She throws punches. You know, she likes to work from distance. She's also kind of a longer, taller fighter. She throws straight punches down the pipe. Though she lack, Even though she throws punches down the pipe, she, she lacks power. She's not a big power puncher. She's more of a point fighter. And surprisingly, when I more film I watch of her, I was surprised how flat-footed she is and how unathletic she is. She's not a great athlete, as you as you mentioned it yourself, but based on how she looks. I mean, she looks like she'd be a great athlete. She does throw a lot of kicks. I think they're pretty good kicks. And I love that you pointed out that she wrestles way more than, like, her reputation. You know, we think about her as a, you know, kickboxer from the outside, but she wrestles a lot. I'd say she's just okay at it. She's okay at winning scrambles. It sometimes can actually be a little wild, especially in the Montefiore fight. Like there were some wild exchanges, and and oftentimes she lost those. And and that's kind of a Montefiore fight, anyways. That seems like a lot of times if you're if you're the same level at Montefiore, she's probably gonna find ways to out scramble you. Uh, at least just weak defense wrestling, not much on the uh, on the defensive wrestling though. I don't know if that's gonna be an issue against Shevchenko. but if she gets taken down, shoot. I mean, 
take the Montefiore fight. She really struggled to get back up. That was a different fight. There's an inability to get back up. So who am I taking? I'm taking Shevchenko. As I said, like she's a bit of my bugaboo. Like I was all in on her before. I loved her in the contender series. I love her striking. I love the little traps. I love her traps. Like she sets traps. She's so intelligent on the feet. However, I could really see Lee out wrestling her as as you pointed out Lee's wrestling game. Maybe she maybe she won't be able to get her down. That's what I'm hoping for. And if she can't get Shevchenko down, which might be much easier than I'm hoping it will be, but if she can't, I think Shevchenko clowns on her on the feet. I think there's a huge disparity. And I think if that happens, so obviously I'm taking Shevchenko to win. If she if she's which means it'll be a you know, big battle on the feet. If that happens, Shevchenko's gonna finish her. So give me Shevchenko. I'm gonna say she's finished her in the third round. Uh, Batikio on the feet. There you go. The first dissension of the night between Keith and myself. We will see who has bragging rights at the end of the of the card. Next up, it is the featherweights as Lando Venata takes on Mike Grundy. Venata, the 29-year-old from New Jersey, is 11-5-2 overall. He is 3-5-2 in the UFC. He fought most recently uh, on August 1st of last year, dropping a unanimous decision to Bobby Green at UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Shabazian. He'll be taking on Grundy. The 34-year-old Brit is 12-2 overall. He is 1-1 in the UFC. Uh, He fought most recently last July, where he dropped a unanimous decision in a wild wrestle and scramble fest against super prospect Movsar Evloyev. Odds on this one do slightly favor Grundy. He is minus 120. Venata is out there at even money. Uh, also worth mentioning that this is Venata's return to the featherweight division after several fights at lightweight. Uh, Keith, who do you have in this one? And uh, how do you see the fight playing out? Man, this is a really good one. This is I know I've said that a lot, but this is one I'm really intrigued on. Is I, I kind of like both guys. I'll start with Venata. Venata is very light on the feet, elusive, good snap on his punches. As Dominic Cruz pointed out in his last fight, he doesn't show a lot of tells. That's because his punches are short. He and they they're short and they come in from weird angles based on him keeping his hands so low. He's got really quick kicks. He turns his hips over very very fast. Uh, a lot of spinning attacks is, that continues. That also works off. You're spinning your hips. You kind of can disguise them a little bit. But despite being so elusive and, and fluid on the outside, he can be dra- dragged into a brawl at like, any moment. And, and that's a little bit because of his ego. Like he, he he's, you know, even his fight, like in his last fight against Bobby Green, he's, you know, trash talking with him and instead of just flowing. Like he does belly when he flows. He, ha- he has a D1 wrestling background and, I like that he doesn't completely ignore. He wants to strike, but he doesn't completely ignore his wrestling. He will sneak in and wrestle, you know, take them. Not nearly enough, you know, enough as he should. And I think that actually opened up his striking more if he did. But I do like that he wrestled a little bit. However, I'm surprised for some guy who wrestled on D1 level how how often he's been taken down in the UFC. Like he's been taken down by guys like. Mark T- Mark Casey, who doesn't come from a wrestling background, I think Mark Casey took him like three or four times, um, and he's also been rocked a lot in like every fight. I mean, he's had so many rock and soccer matches. Now move on to Grande. Grande, he 
you know, Venata is so athletic, but Grady might be able to match him in athleticism. I mean, you just look at Grady. He, he looks like an athlete. He, he, yeah, I've never, I have no idea how strong he is. He just looks strong. <laughs> like, he just looks like a guy that, yeah, like, he would beat me in arm wrestling in the good half a zillisecond. Uh, he's pretty light on his feet. He sets up his takedowns because he uses a lot of feints, up and down feints, which kind of, you don't know if he's going to strike or he's going to shoot. And that's such a good idea to do when you're, you're a wrestler. I also love when, when he does come in with a blitzing attack, he cuts angles the way he comes in, almost like a, almost like a football player doing um, the tire drill where they kind of bounce him back and forth. He does that on his attacks. So he's throwing from different angles. And I like, I, I like that. That's a, that shows some aggression, you know, progression in his striking. When he gets inside, uh, a lot of tight power hooks. I mean, he's a classic wrestle boxer style. He can lunge after those hooks sometimes, which would get him in trouble. Then you know, the higher he goes up the scale, and he does throw one strike at a time often, like looking to land one big blow instead of setting up combinations. But he's a very good wrestler. This is the guy who medaled in the in the Commonwealth Games, which is a very good tournament. Good timing on his reactionary double, and a lot of times. When I say reaction to a double, what I mean by that is it's a lot of times when guys backing up where they're reacting to the offense coming from their opponent. He's really good at getting his opponent to chase him, chase, and then you suddenly you, you stop. You're going back, 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 and then you stop and go forward while they're still coming in, and you're timing, and you're actually – it's two things. One, you're timing whether it be, but also you always have the distance to close. Well, if your opponent moves into that distance, you have less distance to close. You know what I mean? If if you have to close six feet, you move three feet, and they move three feet. It's better than trying to you move all six feet. He's really good at that. I mean, look at his last fight. Most of our Evelov is a very good wrestler, very good grappler, and granted, took him down six times in a fight that he was overmatched, but still was like I didn't feel like his stock went down at all in that loss. When he's on top, he's got heavy t- top pressure. He likes, as we saw in the elephant, he almost submitted it with a darst joke, and that's something he goes to. He likes topside guillotines. This is a tough one, and it's a tough one on because a lot of people are jumping off the Venata train. I mean, when he first came to UFC, a lot of people jumped on him. A lot of people that has recently jumped off based on some struggles. I still like him. I, I think he's still pretty good. However, I also like Grundy. What I like about Grundy is he knows what he's good at, and he gets it there at all costs. Even though his striking has developed and it's coming along, he still knows his best avenue for success is to get the fight to the ground. Despite Venata's wrestling background, I haven't seen enough in him to make me confident he'll st- stop takedowns, and I know Grundy's going to be looking for takedowns, and I know he's going to try to get the fight there at all costs. I think the takedown is going to be different in this fight. I like Grundy to win a decision. I I love a lot of the things you pointed out there because I, I'm, I'm glad that you seem to have come away from the most are able to have fight uh, with the same feeling that I did. Because my, my thought was, okay, Grundy might actually be an even better wrestler than, than I thought he was. Because the problem is not only is Ivloev, you know, an excellent wrestler in his own right, but he's a guy that can scramble like that is just such poison to kind of a, a straight ahead, you know, freestyle wrestler who, who shoots just because, I mean, able have never, ever conceded the takedown. I think in the recap of that show, like last summer, I said, it looked like somebody trying to like stick a cat into a bathtub. 
you know, like like in the Looney Tunes where they're like grabbing by their claws to all four corners of the tub and then flipping over it. Yeah, that, that's what it looked like just as he tried to get Ava Loeb's butt to actually stay on the on the canvas for a minute. But I came away from that believing, okay, one, Ava Loeb is a future top 10 guy and on talent, he might be a top 10 guy now. But also, wow, Grundy's an even better wrestler than I thought. And I'm also with you in that that kind of spells trouble for Venata. I haven't jumped off the Venata train. I mean, I like Venata better than I should like a three, five, and two fighter in the UFC. You know, I think he's better than than his record. But this particular matchup, I agree with you, does not favor him. Uh, Grundy's going to be able to take him down, especially if Venata is still coming with the spinning stuff. Um, and you know, the the tons of kicks. Grundy's going to be able to get him down. And Venata, I don't expect to be able to do the, you know, cat in the bathtub routine and frustrate and wear out Grundy like Avloev did. Uh, one thing I will say is, you know, I obviously to anybody listening who doesn't know, I live in Houston. I'm covering UFC 262 live. I was at the media day today. So, you know, I saw Venata from about 10 feet away. Um, you know, and talked with him at least in a, in a group setting. Uh, he says that he's closer to the featherweight limit right now than he normally is to the lightweight limit by this time in, in fight week. Obviously, he may be lying, but by the eyeball test, he looked really good. And by the eyeball test, he was in a fantastic mood. Like he was one of the most just kind of like jovial and loose and, and laughing and joking guys on the entire media day and i mean Keith, you've covered enough events to know when you can tell a fighter is having a shitty week because he's already starving and dehydrated and he's got you know 10 more percent of his body weight to go that was not the vibe i got from lando venata uh like well for one thing this was the first um live media day after you know basically a year of virtual media days so every single fighter was like hey guys but but venata in particular was like Hey, you guys have any more questions for me? He like didn't want to leave the podium. Like, how often do you get, do you get that during fight week? But all that being said, even if this is the best Lando Venata, this is top shelf featherweight Lando Venata. I think Grundy's just a bad style matchup. Give me Grundy to win a decision uh, in a fight that is still quite entertaining, but his wrestling is going to be the difference, and he wins two or maybe all three rounds. That brings us to what I believe is being described as the feature prelim with Ronaldo Jacare Souza taking on his countryman, Andre Munez. Souza, the 41-year-old Brazilian, is 26-9 and with one no contest overall. He is 9-6 and since joining the UFC as a recently dethroned Strikeforce middleweight champion. He is currently on a three-fight losing streak, those coming against Jack Hermanson, Jan Blachowicz, and Kevin Holland. The Holland fight, of course, where he was memorably knocked out by Holland as Holland sat on the literal seat of his pants uh, just within the first minute or two of their fight last December at UFC 256. Uh, he'll be taking on uh, Muniz, who, after making his kind of belated and delayed entry to the UFC uh, after two appearances on Dana White's Contender Series. Finally showed up in 2019 and has gone 2-0 and ever since. He beat Antonio Arroyo uh, back in November of 2019. 
beat Bartosz Fabinski last September at UFC Fight Night Overeem versus Sakai. Uh, for, incredibly, if you're somebody who was around for uh, Jacare's heyday, these two are a pick at the moment. They are both out there, minus 110. Uh, quick anecdote before I throw, throw it out to you. Uh, Jacare was on the media day today. There was not a translator handy. So, you know, he was just up there. It's like, it's like, hey, I'll do my best. First question was, you know, what do you take away from the Kevin Holland fight? <laughs> his, answer, his, his answer is, what can I take from it? It was terrible. Nobody expects that shit. <laughs> that was like his, his literal response. It's like, your English is just fine. <laughs> How do you not love Jacare? Yeah. <laughs> great yeah it's, it's great that you say that. How do you not love Jacare? Um, yet for all that, you his back is kind of against the wall too. You know, he's lost three straights. He's 41 years old. None of these losses are terrible in a vacuum. I mean, Jack Hermanson is an incredibly wily and tough fighter. Jan Bohovic, well, guess what? Jacare gave Jan Bohovic a hell of a lot more of a fight than his next three opponents. And Jan Bohovic is now your uh, light heavyweight champion. You know, and not Israel Adesanya nor Dominic Reyes, uh, gave him any tougher a fight than than Jacare did. And then there's the Holland fight, which as Jacare said, hey, nobody expects that shit. You know, the except you do expect that perhaps, you know, y- your chin starts to go as as you push into your 40s with, you know, all the wear and tear of the years on him. It's you know, Muniz is a guy that even even the Jacare of like three years ago, I would have favored to crumple Andre Muniz into a small ball and, and kick him into the third row of seats. Just, I mean, Muniz is a big, strong, athletic uh, middleweight whose best route to victory is his grappling. That's that's tough sledding against Jacare Souza, who is in all likelihood the most credentialed and accomplished grappler to like cross over to MMA in a serious way. You know, he's a, without counting, I think he's like an eight or nine time Mundial's gold medalist. Yeah. Like I I think there were four years where he won his weight class and won the absolute. He's a two time Abu Dhabi winner. Like he is, he's in the club. He's in the club. He's in the club. And it's, and it's a small club. club. Like he's on the, he's on the one hand club. And my, uh, Haja Gracie. Yep. Uh, Adolfo Vieira. Yep. He's 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 in the club. Uh, uh, the other Gracie there, uh, what's his name? Hickson's son. Cron. Cron. Cron Gracie, yeah. yeah. Like, but the thing is, Father Time is still undefeated. There was a time when Jacare was guaranteed death on the ground, and it did not matter who you were to uh, almost. But, you know, I, it, was, it was a very arresting visual when Kevin Holland, like, laughed and said, I had a dream about this last night, and then knocked him out, seated. But even before that, you know, people like Jack Hermanson, Kelvin Gastelum, like, spent, Kelvin Gastelum spent significant amounts of time on the ground with Jacare and was never, I mean, there were exchanges that he lost, but there wasn't like, oh man, you know, there was a minute and a half where he was, like, being strangled within an inch of his life. Like, he held his own on the ground for long periods against a guy in the club for the greatest grappler we've ever seen in MMA. Like Sosa's like his weapons aren't quite there anymore. 
Muniz is, I mean, he's a step down from Hermanson, Blahovich, Holland. Like, I'm not saying he's a bad fighter. You know, he probably could have been in the UFC several years ago. But if he beats Souza, like, what's what's left for the guy? It's not a sen- it's not a sentimental pick. I, I really do think Souza is is going to to win this. Um, but I expect that this is going to go the distance. And I'm thinking also, what does Jacare's gas tank look like in this fight? I mean, he he did do two five round fights in just you know back in 2019, but this is a fight that you know may spend significant amounts of time on the ground. Muniz is a bigger, stronger guy at this point in their relative developments. I I'm going to pick Souza to win this by decision, but in a fight that just makes me very nervous as he probably has to survive the third round against a fresher man. Tell me I'm wrong, Keith. Wow. So the whole time I'm listening and I, I heard you sneaking like, uh, you know, I really think Souza's going to win. I'm like, man, that'll sound like you think he's going to win. <laughs> I thought you were taking, uh, Muniz, Muniz. I apologize if I'm saying his name wrong. This is another intriguing fight. I'll start with Souza. As I said, like how could how could you not like Chakare? I feel the same way we talk about Donald Cerrone. Like everyone likes Chakare, regardless. uh, Yeah, if he wins, loses at this point of his career. The problem is, as you said, it's hard to know how much he has left. Obviously, he's. You know, he's lost a lot recently, but to all top-level fighters. I mean, if you don't want to put Kevin Holland in the very top, you know, he's the next tier down. Either way, he's losing to guys who are main eventing UFC cards. But he's also losing to them. So there is decline. He physically, you know, besides losing, he's physically slowed down. You can actually see it. Um, he's definitely laboring out there at some fights. He's become more flat-footed over the years. On the feet, he still marches forward, though. I like that. He loads up on everything, but he's kind of always loaded up on everything. He's And he still hits like a truck. He likes tight, hard hooks. His defense, he, he likes to parry punches. That's the way he defends. I love that he goes down to the body. He did it against Chris Wyman. He took something he attacked. I mean, I, I know a Going back a little bit, mentioning Chris Weidman, just something, you know, the, the fight that first jumped to my head. Um, but, you know, as you say, on the feet, it's, his chin is questionable. Now, I know he wasn't on the feet when he got knocked out by Kevin Holland, but he got knocked out again, and he's up there in age and reaction time. Besides, the, you know, the, the chin and just the reaction time, the punches that used to miss before don't miss anymore. But as you mentioned, like, he's not just a great fighter on the ground. He's one of, if not the greatest grappler in the history of MMA. And what I love about him and why I think he's had such a success transferring from such a prestigious background in in, in career and BJJ over to MMA, unlike some guys who didn't, is because of his style. He, him and like Damian Maya and they were so good at the offensive wrestling attitude. Like they could grapple from on top where so many Jesus guys didn't have that wrestling take. I mean, we've seen Chakray take down wrestlers who are way more credentialed than him. Now his defensive wrestling has faded over the years. I mean, we saw that in Jack Hermanson. But as you mentioned, he has fought 25 minutes 
minutes recently. You know, somewhat recently, I should say. So this being 15 minutes, that makes me feel a little bit more confident. Like, he only has to protect his chin for 15 minutes. He only has to go hard for 15 minutes. Now, Movich Muniz, Muniz's stand-up is weak. I mean, it's it's he lacks head movement. When you attack him, he kind of just covers up. He does, like, what they call pillaring. Pillaring works much better in boxing because the gloves are way bigger. It's much easier to hide behind the gloves in boxing. He throws kicks because he's, he's a longer guy. He throws hooks. He kind of has looping hooks, but they're more distractions. He throws to get to the takedown. He looks for takedowns. He'll just muscle you against the fence, then drop down on your legs and lift you up. But if he gets you down, he's a very high-level grappler. He's good. He's outstanding top control. He's a black belt. He can get subs from bottom. I mean, I, I, when I was watching the film, he, I've seen him get a sub on the bottom. I've seen him get a sub on the top. I've seen him get a sub standing like a jump to a guillotine. I've seen him in a wild scramble end up in a like guillotine or Kamara. Like, he's, he's got the full arsenal in his game. He's got 13 submissions. So as a prediction, Muniz beat up and retired Polo Filo. Maybe he does it again. Maybe he retires another Brazilian legend. But I feel the same way I feel about Cowboy. Now, obviously, my pick of last week, you you picked Alex Moreno. That was brilliant of you. And I look like an idiot because I went with Cowboy. I feel the same way with Jack Ray at this. If he's done, he loses. If he has any shred of Jack Ray still left in him, then he wins. Because this is a huge jump for Vinsky going. From, I mean, uh, for you know, it's going from Bartos Fabinski to Jacare Sousa. If, if there's anything left, he should win. Not just because, you know, the guy's jumping a few wrongs, but as you mentioned, it's a very tough stylistic matchup for Muniz. I think Jacare is probably still the better striker. I probably st- I probably trust Muniz's chin more, but actual like kickboxing match, I would favor Jacare. He still hits like a truck. And I still think he's an elite of the elite grappling. As we said, he's one of the best grapplers ever. Even if he's declined, that's still head and shoulders above most. I think about, like, we think about him getting out grappled by uh, Jack Hermanson, but we forget about, like, the submission attempts Jack Hermanson was going for and, and the incredible ways that Jack Ray found to get out of those submissions. And if Jack, if Jack Ray wasn't submitted, by Hermanson, I don't think Muniz can do that. And I really feel like that's the only way Muniz wins. So give me Jacare and give me Jacare. Not not only do I think that's the only way so let me back up. Not only do I think that's the only way Muniz wins, like I'm very confident that that's a very extremely small window. So I think the line, I think it's very disrespectful to Jacare. I think Jacare should be a much bigger favorite. You're not confident in this pick at all. I'm going the other route, my man. I'm taking oh. Jacques Ray, and I'm saying, stop disrespecting him, all you haters out there. Put some respect on that man's name. He ain't going to lose to a, another Brazilian grappler. I'm locking this in as my lock of the night, Jacques Ray. There you have it. A confident pick, brimming with confidence from Keith. The UFC 262 main card opens up with a meeting of uh, flyweights who will be fighting at Bantamweight. It is Matt Schnell versus Hegerio Bontarin. Schnell, the 31-year-old Texan fighting out of Louisiana, is 15-5 and five overall. He's 5-3 and three in the UFC. 
Uh, he fought just back in January, taking a split decision over Tyson Nam. That was his first time back in the octagon since December of 2019 when he succumbed to first-round punches by Alessandro Pantoja. He'll be taking on Bontarin, who is a 29-year-old Brazilian, 16-3 and with one no contest in his professional career. He is coming back on about a two-month turnaround and about a month's notice to try to right the ship after a two-fight losing streak. He was knocked out in the waning seconds of the first round by Kaikara France at UFC 259 on March 6th. Before that, he fought most recently back in February of 2020, dropping a unanimous decision to Ray Borg at UFC Fight Night, Anderson versus Blahovich 2. Uh, in respect to the fact that uh, Bontarine took this fight on just a month's notice, it is taking place at 135 pounds. Uh, Bontarine is the slight underdog here. He is out there at plus 140, where Schnell is minus 160 as the favorite. Uh, Keith, this is another fantastic fight on a really good main card. Uh, tell me what you like about the fight, who you like in the fight, and how you think it's going to go. Yeah, I think it's a great way to start the card, uh, the main card, because I think flyweight division is such a good division, and I think both these guys, while they've been inconsistent, I think both guys have a lot of talent. I mean, I guess you could really say that about the whole division. Uh, I'll start with Snell. He's well-rounded. He's an aggressive striker, has some power. We we talked about the last fight that even though he got, we remember him getting knocked out by uh, Pantoja, he actually rocked Pantoja in that fight. And that's because um, he hits really hard. I mean, he he's a good pocket striker. When he gets in there, he slides in the pocket. He loads. Um, he he's willing to brawl in the pocket, which I don't know if it's the best strategy because he's a good athlete. Like he could, he's got pretty good speed. He might be able to work from the outside. Uh, it, it we we the fans benefit from it because it's so entertaining. The last fight I also mentioned about, I was a little worried about his chin. Because he was knocked out by Pantoja, but he was getting tagged. I mean, I'm gonna say get tagged, but Tyson Nam is known for being a heavy hitter, and Tyson Nam didn't put him out. So I feel much better about his chin moving forward. Uh, Snell, he's also very good on the ground. He might even be, be even better on the ground. He's got eight submission wins. He likes to attack guillotines. Uh, he can get submissions off his back, triangles, on bars. He's pretty good at sc- scrambling. If he gets taken down, scrambling back to his feet, though. I want to point out, and this is very briefly, and I, I gave him a hard time last time. I'll do it again. I don't like that he he might be a little overconfident in his grappling as he pulled guard against Pantoja. It, it, I I don't think he'll do that against Bontarin, but if he does, then I might not have to pick him again if he if he pulls guard again. <laughs> uh, as far as Bontarin, he's also well rounded. He uh, he switches stances a lot, and that's because he has power in both hands, and and that's very rare attribute especially at flyweight to be able to knock guys out with either hand he also likes to stay tight get inside and throw down in the pocket and just wing punches we saw that his last fight against kai Kara france there's a very good chance that these two guys just you know stand on the line like the old taya drill just aaron boxing and they just throw down and see which one's last standing which which <laughs> would be berserk on the ground he's also a very physically strong guy gets you know Body lock takedowns, clinch takedowns, uh, trip takedowns. He's a good grappler. He's got 11 submission wins. Uh, though the one fight that I, I I always wonder if I overrate his grappling is is the Ray Borg fight. Like I was shocked at how easily Ray Borg out wrestled him. 
But I'm going to just give it a pass because he has looked good on the ground before, so I expect that to be the case moving forward. This is a really tough fight. I like both guys. Both guys are inconsistent, but I think that's more of a product of fighting at flyweight. When you fight at flyweight, like there's just it's just a really good division. Like the talent pool is so good, everyone's so well rounded that you're gonna have you're gonna look great one fight, and you're gonna get outmatched the next fight. Snell is more technician He's a cleaner. Bontrin is more power, and I think he has more natural gift, uh, God given ability. And that might be the ultimate equalizer. I think we have both these guys throw down. I think we have an exciting affair. And I think Bontarin's going to catch him with a big shot. Give me Bontarin to win by first-round knockout. I'm really glad that you brought up the Tyson-Nam fight because if this fight were taking place right after the Pantoja fight, I'd be even more worried that, yeah, these guys would just do the tire drill, as, as you brilliantly put it and Schnell would catch something bad and this thing would be over early. And there's still every chance that that happens. I mean, you're picking Bontarine by first round uh, knockout. I can easily see that happening. I'm going to go, you know, with the opposite, or I'm not really the opposite, but the the alternate outcome here, which is where Schnell either avoids the real heavy fire in the early going or, you know, survives it and and ends up... uh, you know, this ends up going all three rounds, despite, you know, the at least the main card here just being all fantastic matchups. This is going to be my pick for fight of the night. I think we're going to get just three rounds of just the most flyweight of wild flyweight action, both on the feet as well as on the grounds. But give me Matt Schnell by this by decision. And to be more specific, give me Matt Schnell by winning the second and third rounds. Uh, I expect him to catch some fire from Bontarine early on. I expect him to have the better gas tank late, despite the weight class allowance. Just you know, Bontarine coming back on on such relatively short notice when he probably was not expecting a fight. But again, wouldn't be surprised at all if Schnell's, you know, staring up at the lights. What a great fight! Back up to featherweight we go for a. Strikers delight between Edson Barboza and Shane Burgos. Barboza, the 35-year-old Brazilian, is 21 and 9 overall. He's 15 and 9 in the UFC. Uh, he fought most recently last October, taking a unanimous decision over Maquan Amerkani. That put the end to a three-fight skid for him, in which he had lost to Justin Gaethje, Paul Felder, and Dan Ige. Ige, of course, was the beginning of Barboza's uh, featherweight uh, adventure and the Amarcani fight was also at featherweight. He'll be taking on Burgos. Burgos is uh, 30 years old, 13 and two overall, six and two in the UFC. Uh, he fought most recently last June, dropping a unanimous decision to Josh Emmett in an absolute barn burner of a fight, a fight of the year candidate. But uh, for him, that did put the end to a three fight winning streak. Uh, he had beaten Kurt Hollabaugh, Cub Swanson, and Amarkani. Uh Burgos, the younger man, uh, slight favorite here. He is minus 135. You can get Barboza at plus 115 uh, as, the, you know, as the slight underdog. Part of me is surprised at how good Edson Barboza has looked at featherweights. But 
it's not that he's looked great at featherweight. It's just that I expected the wheels to completely fall off and they haven't. So it's more that like I was expecting disaster and all that's really happened is it hasn't fixed his problems. I mean, normally when you get a, you know, a guy in his mid thirties who's on a losing streak and he drops in weight, that's a, that's a no, no. Like it's, it's never worked for anybody in the history of, of the sport, you know, like dropping in weight when you're on a losing streak and over the age of about 32, like it just, it doesn't work for Barboza. I'm surprised. He didn't look like a guy with 10 pounds to spare. You know, he's kind of, he's not the tallest lightweight in the world, even if he is like 5'10 or 5'11, but he's just got this huge V taper wingspan. He's a very muscular guy, you know, for his bone structure, but he's dropped the weight. He hasn't looked dead at weigh-ins. He hasn't failed to make weight. So I, it's been fine. And he's looked okay, but he's looked to me basically like lightweight uh, Barboza did, only that featherweight Barboza got to take a little bit of a step back in competition. I mean, he dropped out of the lightweight division on the back of losses to Justin Gaethje and Paul Felder. That's a top five and a top ten fighter. You know, like, did he look that good against Amir Khani just because Amir Khani was a step down from Ige, who was a step down from Felder, who was a step down from Gaethje? Or does he really have new life? I don't know. But all I know is, at this point, he is what he is. He was never he was never a high-volume striker. He's always been a sniper rather than a machine gunner. You know, like, uh, w- what you don't remember about the insane Terry Adam knockout is I think he threw about 10 strikes that fight. You know, <laughs> like, like that's him. He, he is a sniper. Uh you know, one of the ultimate snipers in the history of the sport, along with, you know, like your Jose Aldo's. Uh, and that that kind of low-volume, pick-your-shots approach has only gotten more extreme as he's gotten older. You know, he's kind of, I think he's managed his gas tank and protected his chin by becoming even more deliberate. Uh, and that's also been a reaction to... I'm not going to say exposed, because, I mean, he's 15-9 and nine in a couple of the toughest divisions in the UFC. He's one of the most exciting strikers that those divisions have ever seen. So I'm not going to say like exposed, but once the book was written on how a top fighter could beat Edson Barboza, you know, until kind of your Michael Johnson's and uh, Tony Ferguson's came along, nobody really understood that. Okay. You put him on his back foot, you crowd him, you don't give him the time and the space to uncork these huge high amplitude kicks that, you know, he really loves to throw. I mean, before that, the only guy who'd beaten him at the UFC level was Donald Cerrone, and Donald Cerrone took him down. Uh, So I think a lot of what Barboza's done over the last five or six years has been to kind of guard himself from that. But as he has slowed, uh, you know, that's become less effective. But nonetheless, he's still fighting top 10 fighters every time out. The guy just really, for the longest time, could not catch a break, matchmaking-wise. He got a bit of a a break against Amarkani. But now he's taking on Burgos, and Burgos is a tough ask for him. Burgos is going to come forward. Burgos is a high-pressure guy. And again, even at his very best, Barboza didn't like pressure. And and Burgos has a rugged, rugged chin on him. I I think it's entirely possible that Burgos will walk into one of Barboza's legendary kill shots and simply not be killed. And it'll be a mix of Shane Burgos being the guy whose sure dog fight finder photo is literally him grinning at the camera with a mouthful of blood. Like that is who Shane Burgos is. And then Edson Barboza just having lost that little bit off of his top gear. I think this is going to be an absolute war. I wouldn't be surprised if this wins fight of the night, even if I'm picking the flyweight contest before it, 
But give me at Shane Burgos in a bit of a changing of the guard moment. Uh, this is going to be a big step up uh, for him, not in terms of competition, because I, I think, uh, you know, Josh Emmett was probably ranked right around the same point. But Burgos made a good point. Uh, you know, they asked him about taking the Barboza fight. And he said, when they offered me the fight, I got goosebumps. This is a guy I was watching when I was in high school. And, and he said, I don't care that he's lost some fights. I don't care that he's ranked behind me. He's like, I'm ranked ninth right now. He's ranked 13th. But in all of your minds, and he's kind of pointing at the, the media and the fans, like, this is still a win that will move me forward. We asked him, will this be another fight of the night for you? He's like, nope, this will be my first performance of the night. Oh, you're going to finish him? Yes, I'm going to finish him. I don't believe Shane Burgos. I think he's, <laughs> I think he's more likely to get another fight of the night, but this is going to be a hell of a fight. Give me Shane Burgos by decision. <laughs> I think I was getting goosebumps with those comments. Uh, man, this is a fantastic fight. This is, it's so funny. Like, I feel like we're broken record, and I keep saying like every fight. Like, man, I love this fight, and I just, I love breaking down film. I love studying guys, and I really wish I had more time on my hands to really dig in deeper, and really learn every little intricacies about these guys, because I could watch these two guys battle. Like, they're just so good at what they do. Barboza, yeah, he's a Muay Thai striker. He's got. If 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 we're talking about greatest leg kicks. Or just greatest kicks in general, not necessarily kicks, just kicks at all era. He's in the club. He's on the Mount Rushmore. He's in there. Him, Gaethje, Jose Aldo, Pedro Hizzo, <laughs> like who, I don't know, whoever. Crow Cop, obviously. You know, look, he's in the club. He's got kicks everywhere. As as you were talking about, kicks to the legs. His body, his body kicks are just crucial, brutal, and I. He he is a builder in a different way than we normally f- phrase it. We talk about a guy who output builds as the rounds go on. That's not the case for Barboza. He's a builder because the just the damage he does starts becoming bigger. The Dan Hooker fight is the ultimate. Exactly. Oh, that was one of the hardest fights. And, and I actually remember this. And I, and and there was another fight we talked about. I forgot what it was. Where I said the same thing. It's one of those ones where I'm watching it happen. And obviously it's entertaining, but it's one of those, you start asking yourself, like, why do I like this? Why do I like watching someone get actually <laughs> tortured? Like, this is torture. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I felt like this. And, and that's what I mean by he's a builder. Like, those kicks just look like they get add more power as the round goes on. And it's not. It's just that, that the target is starting to break. And the thing about his kicks He's such a good kicker that it really overshadows a pretty good boxing game. Like, no one talks about Edson Barboza's boxing, but if you took away Edson Barboza's kicks, obviously he's a completely different fighter. He's still a pretty good fighter without his kicks. He's got fast hands. He works behind a busy jab. I love that he targets the body with his punches. He'll go downstairs. He did it in his last fight against Marikani a lot. I would say his plus power, that he's not... Yeah, he's not just engaging. That was one of the big differences in their fights. But, I mean, his straight right flattened Americani twice in their fight. And I think what also happens with his hands and why he generates more power than he gets credit is his opponents is always constantly thinking about his kicks, that it's going to open doors. 
to for the hands. You know, you're not really focused on the hand because you're worried about it. You're worried about seeing that that hip bone start turning over and that kind of giving you frights. And when he goes to turn like that, it's actually a right hand going over the top. He, I think his takedown defense is better than he gets credited. Hey, it's not good. It's not a strength. But I, I, I've heard people talk about like just bad wrestling. I don't think that's true. What I think he struggles with is his get up game. You know, some of that is a little deceiving because he's had Habib Nurmagomedov on him. Nobody gets off of him. And Kevin Lee, who is a very good, fantastic grappler, too. He he does fade light. Like That, to me, I don't think is exaggerated. And I think that's because of his explosive style. I mean, when you're as explosive... I mean, he's one of the most... If we talk about Donald, we're talking about the club. We're talking about the explosive club. Like, just the pure athleticism, you know, quick twitch athletes. Like, my bros is in that club, too. Mm-hmm. And if you, the first time you ever listened to that show, what we like to call the club is we don't debate who's the best in that. Just if there's a private membership club, do they get in? And 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 if there's a private membership club for quick twitch athletes, Barbosa is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the troubling thing is, you talk about a guy that's maybe declining. I, I'm worried about that too. Like I haven't seen the gaping decline as as we've seen other guys that. There are there like like a Jacare, but you just assume it based on the amount of wars and damage. I mean, think about what Habib did to him. Think about what Kevin Lee did to him. Think what Justin Gaethje did to him. And and he's had other wars that you know even even Dan Hooker. Like we think about Dan him, him destroying Dan Hooker early. That was an absolute war. You know, the big, I mean, we talk about him destroying him late, but that was an absolute war up to when Barbosa started taking over. So that's how I say troublesome now. Shane Burgos. Shane Burgos is a huge featherweight. Like, I just rewatched his fight with Josh Emmett, which is a fantastic rewatch. You should watch that regardless if you do a tape study on a fighter. It's just a really fun fight. He looked two weight classes bigger. He looked like a like a featherweight facing a welterweight. Like he looked massive against Josh Emmett, who, mind you, used to be a lightweight. He yeah, yeah. He, he moved down to featherweight. Burgos constantly moved forward, crazy high output. Fast hands. Uh, he keeps his hands by his side, so they come from that all up jabs. They kind of they get hidden because of that. They're they're low, which is good offensively, but I think is bad defensively because Burgos does not the guys who keep their hands low. You need extremely good head movement, and Burgos for the most part actually I would say is bad head movement. He doesn't move it enough. He gets tagged a lot. Now he has. A, very crisp jab. He's got fast hands. He's good pocket boxing. Like he he follows his jab into the pocket. He's always constantly taking the ground. When you take a step back, he take he's looking at is like almost. I think about like the old battlefields when you know two armies would come out. You know the British army, the American army, and the colonials. And when they were winning, they would take the ground. That's what he does. He gets you to back up, and he's constantly taking the ground. And making you use that energy, the energy you're using backing up, he, he's using that against you because, like, a step forward is not the same as a step back. And that's something he's always does. He's added leg kicks into his game a lot now. He's really turning that up. He did that, Josh Emmett. We saw that. I mean, Josh Emmett hurt his leg, but he also targeted the leg with leg kicks. Things I don't like about him, though, is he's been taken down, like, all, in wrestling, like, surprisingly a lot for a guy who's, you know, top 10. He has almost no offensive wrestling. I, I shouldn't say he has no offensive wrestling. We just haven't seen it. Like he might be a pretty good wrestler. We just 
<laughs> he just loves to throw down in the pocket. Uh, and he's also taken a lot of damage, not to the sense that Edson Barboza has because he hasn't been around the game, but he's been hurt. I mean, Josh Emmett hit him with freaking everything and dropped him twice. The first one, the first one he caught him with, he kind of, it was a perfectly timed punch where Burgos was stepping in and kind of caught him stepping in and kind of, but the second one was just perfect placing. I thought he was, I thought Burgos flash knocked out for a second. And then I, I remember like Kurt Hollibaugh dropped him. If you remember going back to their fight. So, as far as prediction goes, you seem really excited about this. I'm so excited. For it. This is my fight of the night p- prediction. We're going to have a war. I just want this fight to be here already. Like when I started breaking up, <laughs> like this, I, I feel like this should have it. This should be a main event on a, a fight night to get like two extra rounds. Uh, I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to go with Barbosa. Barbosa is a lot like Shevchenko. Like he's another one of my bugaboos. Like I've always liked Barbosa. Burgos gets hit too much for my liking. Barbosa is much harder to hit. And Burgos has a lot of similar style to Hooker where he stands up tall. He's a bigger he's a big target. And we saw what Barbosa could do to Hooker. Obviously, I'm not saying, you know, apples and oranges are different, but I just mean you give you become a big target. I one hundred percent agree with what you're saying about Burgos's pressure could be a big problem. But the problem with pressure is he can be stepping into some clean jabs, some clean hip kicks. Um, obviously, high kicks, and it would not shock me at all if he, if Edson Barbosa gets one of his best knockouts ever and lands, like you said, that he lands that kill switch and doesn't kill him. That very well might be the case, or very well might be the case. A switch kick to the head puts Shane Burgos out. I'm, I'm going to say it doesn't happen. I think if we're going to get one of these all-time classic fights, I'm going to take Barbosa by split decision and the obvious fight of the night pick. Well, we agree on something there. This one's going to be a banger. UFC 262 main card. The third fight from the top is the third of three women's flyweight attractions. This one features former title challenger Caitlin Jukagian against rising Brazilian Viviane Araujo. Jukagian, the 32-year-old uh, New Jerseyite, is 15-4 and four overall. She is 8-4 and four in the UFC. Uh, she fought most recently back in November at UFC 255, taking a unanimous decision over Cynthia Calvillo. That was a comeback from her to a devastating knockout loss to Jessica Andrade uh, in October, where Andrade uh, crushed her with a punch to the body late in the first round, and that was all she wrote. Araujo, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 10-2 and overall. She's 4-1 and in the UFC. She is currently on a two-fight winning streak over Roxanne Mataferi and Montana De La Rosa. Uh, those are uh, put further in the rear view her only UFC loss, which was a unanimous decision to Jessica I back in December of 2019. Chikagian is the slight favorite here. She is minus 140 or so, where Arojo is uh, plus 120. Keith? Uh, what do you think of this fight? Who wins? Uh, how does it look? Yeah, so we just talked about Burgos and, and Barbosa saying that it's going to be an all-out war. Like, I'd be – any fight that has Caitlin Chikagian is probably not going to be an all-out war. That's not really her game. But I'm still really intrigued from an X and O sense because they are different, and I see avenues of victory for both of them. And I think they're both really good. So I, that's why I'm intrigued by this fight. 
Chikagian is is very. I mean, she's a long, lengthy girl. She talks about that. She's big for the weight class. She uses movement really well. She's a high. I I, I want to say high volume striker. I don't know if that's really true. Uh, she throws like straight punches and works when she's landing. She works behind a jab. But what she likes to do is what I call the Holly Home. She likes to throw punches out of range, just in that safe zone where nobody's really getting hit. But it, you know your opponent still has to put their hands up a little bit and make noise, and then you kind of trick the judges into thinking you're winning. It's something Holly Holm does, something Caitlin Jakagian does. And she even follows Holly Holm in the fact that she loves that sidekick like Holly Holm does, that karate sidekick. And um, it's very wise. People are going to give you fights, in, and especially Holly Holm's case, uh, and not take a lot of damage. Good for you. She, But that's one really good range, but another good range is all the way in. Like if she gets into the clinch, she's a good clinch fighter because she's taller. She get, you know, It's easy to get your knees up. And she's a very underrated grappler. I mean, she trains on the Henzo Gracie and John Danaher. And uh, I know she trains wrestling Nick Cantone. I mean, that's, those are really good grapplers. She's got some sneaky takedowns. She can win a wrestling match. You look at the Antoinette Shevchenko fight, and she basically just wrestled. When she's on top, she's got good top control. Uh, she showed her intelligence in that fight by, you know, not you know, just rushing him to the takedowns, getting the fight to the ground, and not let her ego take over and try to stand up and bang with Shevchenko. It was the easiest route to victory, and she won it. That's what. That's a big part of uh, Caitlin Chikian's game. She she looks like someone who's out there thinking and game planning and strategizing. Now, move over to Arusha. She's very different. She's fast. She's athletic. She's elusive. Has really good lateral movement, good footwork. I say she's well rounded, can fight from both stances. She likes to counter strike, which may be an issue against someone like Chikagian if Chikagian is not coming all the way into that range. If she's playing that out kind of tricky game where I'm throwing stuff and you're relaxing because nothing's touching you, but you can't counter strike. But she does well to, normally she does well to draw out the attacks because she throws a lot of feints herself. She's twisting her hips, she's moving, she's drawing out the attacks to counter strike. I like that she goes to the body and that makes a big part of her game. Very, very good leg kicks. She did it against Montana De La Rosa. She did it against Jessica. But I'm surprised that for someone who kicks so good, she doesn't check kicks herself. Like Jessica I did well in their fight by making it a dirty fight and getting in the pocket and throwing down hard leg kicks. Arujo is a good grappling. She needs to use it more. She's got good entries, good top pressure, uh, could really do some damage from ground and pound. The other, another concern I have about her is that she fades late. Like we saw it against Jessica I. That was the difference in the fight. It's like she was way ahead of that fight, and Jessica I came back, won the second and third round. And Montana De La Rosa, like she destroyed her early, and De La Rosa actually was starting to come back later on in that fight. So I'm going to take that more as an experience. I feel like. She also has a high output early, so that might be it. Like she needs to control her output, but it's something to watch. Where someone like Shakegan, I've never seen her fade. This is so good. Arusho has all the tools to beat Shakegan, just pure natural speed. And however, Shakegan, like we were talking about, is so intelligent. I can see her just outworking Arusho from distance or getting some takedowns. However, in this fight, I'm going to go with the talent over the intelligence. 
And I think this is actually going to be a breakout performance from Arujo. I've been high on this girl for a while, and she needs one of those fights that really opens up her, you know, people's eyes to her as a true con- title contender. I say she's too fast at Chikagan. I say she's able to land a lot of kicks against Chikagan. And I say she wins a decision. This is my upset special. Man, I I love that analysis. And I could absolutely see Arojo with, you know, the same kind of, I mean, she's not literally the same, but the, the same combination of explosion and power that allowed Jessica Andrade to close the pocket and and land hard on Chikagian. I could see her doing that. Uh, I can't pick it. Like, all the things you said, like, just, she's, she's so smart. Uh, she's not, like, she's not shy about using her best skills and her best physical gifts to win a fight, even if it is, always isn't the prettiest thing. I have the feeling this is going to be a frustrating fight for Arojo as Chikagian keeps her on the outside, keeps her at the end of her punches, or perhaps even beyond the end of her punches. You know, but she'll keep making those key eyes so, you know, they score points. Uh, if uh, Arujo starts to get tired, I could definitely see Jukagian turning to her wrestling to, you know, maybe seal the third round. But give me Jukagian by, uh, you know, by a, a decision that the Houston crowd will be too elated even to boo. They'll just be so happy to have live fights back in the house. We arrive at the co-main event, a lightweight matchup between former interim champ Tony Ferguson and the red-hot Benil Dariush. Ferguson, the 37-year-old Californian, is 25-5 and overall. He is 15-3 and since winning the 13th season of The Ultimate Fighter. He is currently on a two-fight losing streak, the first losing streak of his career. He lost to Justin Gaethje at UFC 249 last May uh, by fifth-round TKO, just almost a mercy stoppage after a hellacious accumulation of damage at the hands of the highlight. He came back last December, took on your headliner tonight, Charles Oliveira, and dropped a unanimous decision to him in a fight in which Oliveira had enough to outdo him everywhere on the feet as well as on the ground. That is where Ferguson now finds himself, and he is taking on Dariush, a man who at 32 is uh, finally starting to live up to his his promise of a few years ago and has finally broken through to the very top echelon of perhaps the toughest division in the sport. Dariush, 24-1 overall. He is 14-4-1 in the UFC. He is on a six-fight win streak. Those six wins, Tiago Moises, Drew Dober, Frank Camacho, Dracar Close, Scott Holtzman, and just back in February, uh, he took a split decision over Diego Fajera in a matchup of top 10 fighters. Dariush will be able to say something that only one other man has ever been able to say. He is the favorite over Ferguson. Ferguson, in a 19-fight UFC career, has been underdog only to Rafael Dos Anjos and now Benil Dariush. Dariush, minus 170. Ferguson, plus 145, plus 150 or so. Ah, what, what a fight this is. It will answer so many questions. 
is is Ferguson just is he spent goods? We don't know. He's lost his last two fights decisively, but they were against top three fighters. I mean, they were against two of the the three best fighters in the post Khabib Nurmagomedov lightweight division. Those two and Dustin Poirier are it. This is a step down from a top three fighter to a top 10 fighter. If Tony Ferguson is still a top 10 or a top five fighter, we're going to find out. The problem with, I, I have no problem with losing to, to Gaethje. I mean, Gaethje is, you know, he's a builder. He's an attrition fighter. Uh, he's a guy that really with his leg kicks and his insane toughness and his cardio was built for five round fights. Which, you know, a lot of the same things you could say about Ferguson, only Gaethje had the additional bonus of just huge punching power. The, the Charles de Bronx fight concerns me more. And, of course, that was recent enough that you and I did both a preview and, you know, did we did a preview as well as a recap for it. And I was big on Ferguson going into that fight. I didn't yet believe in the new Charles de Bronx. I said, this is Charles de Bronx a guy that has shown that he will break against Tony Ferguson, a fighter who all he does is break people. You know, his, his style has never been about being unhittable. It's about being so violent and so aggressive and so dangerous everywhere that he just overwhelms his opponent with violence. It's like if a combine harvester came like rolling at me, I could punch it a bunch of times, but I'm going to lose that fight because it's just this big, massive spinning blades. That's going to cut me to ribbons. That, that was Tony Ferguson at his best. I mean, Anthony Pettis laid some licks on him. Rafael dos Anjos. Lando Venata had him on skates. But just nobody could stand up to what he brought back. I mean, it's why he's such a legendary fighter. He, it was just... He has a legacy of brutality in the lightweight division. And that's why it was so shocking to me to see Oliveira stand up to everything he had and take control of the fight. Um, that's concerning about Ferguson. You know, Ferguson's 37. He's been through wars. Like I just said, even in the fights he wins, he's taken damage. He's been prone to injury over the years. I mean, the, the Nurmagomedov fight was canceled five times, four times, five times. And it was just as many times due to his illness or injury. And then there is, of course, his legendary, just manic, hardcore training style who knows how much tread that man has taken off his own tires just in the pursuit of, you know, perfecting himself physically. It, it's all got to, it's all got to come to an end at some point. And I think this has been Neil Darius's time. Uh, Darius, he's not to the same extent as Charles de Bronx that we're going to talk about next, but when he first came into the UFC, he was an incredibly gifted fighter who had all the offensive tools, but was prone to losing bad fights at inopportune times. And in the lightweight division, you just can't afford to do that. You have to string together too many wins in a row to make it to the title picture. He's now won six in a row, and he looked great at it. I, I, love, the, I, I love this fight, but I just ex expect that... Uh, but Neil Darius is going to be able to, to take the best of what Ferguson gives him. The fact that he's not going to be not going to have to be as worried about Ferguson's incredibly aggressive and opportunistic submission game definitely helps a lot because the old the old snap jitsu, as he calls it, is something 
you know, that's not going to slow down at the same rate as it's striking. Give me Darius by decision in this one, and this is just another great, great fight. Yeah, anytime you get Tony Ferguson in a fight, it's it's always like I don't know the last time I had Tony Ferguson fought, and I wasn't like through the roof excited. And this is no different. And it's really it's tough to know. And I feel like this is a theme we've been saying the last two weeks. It's tough to know what you have with Tony Ferguson. Uh, one, you, and I, I say this as sensitive as I possibly can be. I mean to say this sensitive. You don't know what's going on in his head. I think it's been, he's, you know, at times have been open about, kind of open at some of his struggles. So you don't know what's going on in his head, but you don't know what's going on with his body based on all the injuries and this and that. But also we don't know where he stands because it very well may be that he just lost to Justin Gaethje and Charles Oliveira, who very well might be the two best lightweights in the world. Could be. They're in the club. <laughs> They're in the conversation. I mean, Charles Oliveira might be the champion. Come, you know, Saturday night, technically Sunday morning here on the East Coast. And Justin Gaethje's not far off from getting a title shot. Yep. You know? And, and all, Dustin Poirier is out there picking up a check, but he's going to be right back in the picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All, all, all respect to Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor, who's fighting for each other. I just, you know, these are two of the best fighters in the world. And not even just lightweight, just regardless of weight class. The two of the best, some of the all-time pound-for-pound guys. So is he just a notch below those guys? If that's the case, then he very well could not just beat Benel, you know, she could dominate. We could have one of these classic Tony Ferguson fights. But if he's not, and he's done, well, Benel Delarius is not the guy you want to be damaged goods against. So I want to talk about some of the good things about Tony Ferguson. Like, when he's on his game, his output is unmatched. Like, it, it, he's incredible. I mean, like, I guess, I mean, you know, there's a handful of guys, but when I say I'm match, you get what I'm saying. Like he's he's up there. Like his his output is insane. He's also so unpredictable and creative. Like you never know what you're saying. I said this last time before, and I want to quote him again because I loved it. Dan Hardy says, "You don't know what you're gonna get from Tony." I'm sorry, you don't know what Tony's gonna do because he doesn't even know what he's going to do. <laughs> and, and like I just love that. It's, uh, when he's on his game, he's just flowing. He he's we talked about Caitlin King with a game plan. That's not Tony Ferguson. He's just flowing. He just feels it. You know, they say like, well, like when an artist is painting or 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 a classic composer is is playing the piano, they just feel it. Like they don't have to think. And that's what, how it is with him. He lands from weird angles. He'll jab your face off into oblivion. His straight right is deadly. He's got a deep kick game. Lots of leg kicks, and that's all from the outside. You get the inside from him. And that one is where you get in the danger zone because he's throwing slicing elbows like we've never seen before. He might throw a spinning back elbow, you know, and uh, as soon as you're reacting to something like that, he's increasing the output. And you're like, oh, he just threw a 10 punch combination. How does the guy have an output? And the next minute, he's throwing a 15 punch combination at you. However, and this has always been the case, whether we this is a good Tony Ferguson or bad. There is some bad things. I mean, he has huge defensive holes. He drops his hands often. He'll lead with his chin, which is insane. Uh, he keeps his chin high. When you throw at him, he'll lean back. He'll lean back when he strikes and lose power. He's open to leg kicks. We saw that against 
the Barbosa, we saw that against Gaethje, we even saw it against Oliveira. They had a lot of great success. He gets hurt often. I do love how I don't remember who described him, but it, it was a really and I said this last time we fought that and he gets dropped, he'll just kind of spin through. Even like when Justin Gaethje was hurting him, they said he he spins like he looks like Sonic the Hedgehog when he gets knocked down. Um, so, you know, you don't like how how many times he's been hurt. The other thing I've always thought his wrestling has been grossly overrated. He's a funk style wrestler. He shoots entries more to create a scramble, and then try to catch something in that scramble. Like you talked about seeing two cats fighting on like a cartoon. Like it's it's the same thing with him, like a cat and mouse fighting. But then at the end, when when the dust settles, like the mouse has the piece of cheese in his mouth. Like that's what Tony Ferguson's like. I'm oh. I'm gonna have this crazy scramble, and then when it ends, I'm gonna be choking your lights out. <laughs> like usually oh. that happens. He he has never once shot a takedown with the intention of trying to secure top control. No, <laughs> no, no. He just wants something crazy to happen. Uh, he wants you to sprawl, and then somehow he he like cutwheels into your onto your back, and he's choking you. Uh, but he's also had weak defense, and he doesn't really fight takedowns that well. I mean, I think about Kevin Lee took him down and in their fight and was doing extremely well. At one point, he actually mounted him early in that fight. I mean, his last fight against Charles Oliver, he took him down and even commented like, "Yeah, maybe I should train more jujitsu for this fight." You know, he was kind of like funny about it. Now, move over to Darius. This guy has just been on the rise, looking better and better of recent memory. Southpaw has really improved his striking over the years. He is also a high-volume striker uh, that's developing power, and, and it's coming over that overhand left. is kind of becoming a thing. He loves that that uh, blow. Kicks to the body is starting to become a thing. He's pretty hittable, though. Uh, Dr- close was really doing some damage with the kicks. It hurt him on the feet a little bit. Um, he's He's good in the clinch, particularly with his knees. Uh, great entries um, for for a non wrestler. Like he, he he gets a lot of credit for his grappling. He doesn't get enough credit for like how good his wrestling is. Uh, I mean, you saw it against uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira in, in his last fight. Like he was able to take Carlos Diego Ferreira down, and we actually saw how good Carlos Diego Ferreira is, is in wrestling when Gregor Gillespie had a lot of you know obviously Gillespie won, but Gregor Gillespie, a Division One NCAA champion. Struggled to take Diego down and hold him down. That wasn't the case of Benel Darius. Benel Darius was able to take him down and hold him down. And that's because he's a multi-time Nogi world champion in jiu-jitsu. Like I was listening to um, someone, someone I actually respect, but they were talking about the grappling and it was giving Tony Ferguson the advantage. And I was like, I don't, I don't see that at all. If this is a grappling match, this is heavily favors Benel Darius. He's got because he's so much more technically sound, such a different style. He'll hold you down, suffocate you on top control. Got some slick back takes. He has eight submission wins in his career. Uh, but the one big concern I have is his chin has been checked. He's got three KO losses. So Ferguson's landing that right hand. He could put him out. This is a fantastic fight. As far as my prediction go, unlike Cerrone and unlike Jack Ray, I'm not holding on it. I'm jumping off the bandwagon in this one. I can't get the Kevin Lee fight out of my head. And if I can see Darius having the same success as Kevin Lee, get him taken down, dominating the grappling, mounting him. And honestly, not only am I picking Darius, I think it's going to be an easy decision victory. So give me, give me, uh, I'm going to say Darius, I'm going to say 30 27, all, all three scorecards. 
There you go. A a strong pick for a bit of a changing of the guard moment at lightweight. With that, we arrive at the main event of UFC 262. Five rounds for the lightweight title vacated by the retirement of Khabib Nurmagomedov. It is Charles the Bronx Oliveira against Iron Mike Chandler. Oliveira, the 31-year-old Brazilian, is 30-8 and eight with one no contest overall. He is 18-8 and eight with one no contest in the UFC. He is the UFC's all-time leader in submissions. Chandler, the 35-year-old Missourian, is 22-5 overall. He is a perfect 1-0 in the UFC, having uh, landed a shocking knockout of Dan Hooker at UFC 257 in January. Odds slightly favor Oliveira. He is minus 135. Chandler is out there as high as plus 118 as the slight underdog. Keith, I'm going to kick this to you for your pick, but first, an opinion question. And I'm, I don't think the UFC is always like calculating and diabolical in their matchmaking. A lot of times, I think they really do just make the best matchups they can and react to what shakes out of it. But do you think they were happy or sad that uh, Chandler beat Hooker in his uh, UFC debut? Oh, happy. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, if Hooker was the only face of you know australia slash new zealand mma you know that he was the only you know top 10 guy from that scene maybe they would have liked hooker but to get a you know prize acquisition from your your, your main competition who's a champion of them for a long time who was really one of the faces of that organization plus you know he's an all-american wrestler with you know fun dynamic power in his hands like that was a no-brainer for them they wanted michael Chandler one and he's 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 a new toy too like that always attracts like you just kid gets a new video game you know they put mario brothers one by the side they stop playing mario brothers two excellent i actually disagree a little bit i was surprised when they announced chandler as the former bellator champ they often don't do that when uh former or sitting champs come other come over from other promotions. I kind of wonder if they were hoping to get one up on Bellator by having, you know, their greatest homegrown star lose to, uh, you know, a top 10 UFC guy, but not a guy who was in immediate line for a title shot. I kind of wonder. And I wonder now if they're like, oh man, if the Bellator guy comes over here on the downside of his Bellator career and wins our title, how's that going to make us look? I kind of wonder. Well, my thinking is if they were worried about that, they wouldn't have put him in that position because it's not like he went on this five, six, seven fight win streak. You had no choice. Like you had him. Like if if you replaced right now, you replaced Michael Chandler with Justin Gaethje, it doesn't sell any less pay-per-views. It might even sell even more. Like you had other options. No, absolutely. They, they did. Uh, I'm going to have you give your pick, but just if Chandler wins... I mean, how insufferable is Patricio Pitbull going to be on Sunday morning? Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. rightly so. But... Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, if if Michael Chandler wins, like, I, I don't know. I, I don't have our pound-for-pound pound rankings memorized, but I know 
Pitbull is in it. Mm-hmm. Michael Chandler wins and obviously rises up our Pound Pound rankings. We probably have to rise Pitbull too. And the, this is the case, you know, take, taking Habib Namagamate off by the side. Like, I'm saying that he's not the best in the world. I know we still have number one based on our, our you know, our guidelines for rankings and the 18-1 window, and I, I understand that. But putting him to the side, the UFC is going to say, you know, by the title that this is the best lightweight in the world, and the, your main competition has their lightweight champion who starts your lightweight champion in, like, just over a minute. And is their featherweight champion. Is, and is their featherweight, but, but, yeah. but yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, even, even, even better argument that he actually went up a weight class and starts them in under a minute. Pitbull will have a strong argument that I am not only the best lightweight in the world, I'm the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world. I'm not saying that I agree with that, but you can definitely understand the logic because, one, I, I'm a two-weight class champion. I'm the champion of – you can he, you know, he's going to say I'm the champion of two organizations. You know he's going to say that. Oh, hell yes, yes. So he's got, I think he's going to have a very strong argument for best – I think that's probably Dustin Poirier based on what he's done, or but but like I don't hate anybody who calls Pitbull the best, and like he's gonna be way up there in the pound for pound. Like you got to. Yeah, there'll be some movement. Like 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 let's be honest. Like when we talk about stock rising at the end of the show, if Michael Chandler wins, he's probably gonna be on one of our Bulls and Bears lists. Oh you yeah. Know, uh, like Pitbull is probably gonna be on our Bulls list somewhere. Or Bellator, oh, yeah. some, some kind of connection. Absolutely. With that said, break down this extremely intriguing fight for me. You know, I was thinking about when you were when you were, you know, setting this fight up. I was thinking about the conversation we had in the beginning, where you we talked about, you know, the winner might get a little slack from the casuals and. Oh, uh, you know, Habib's a real champ, and oh, Poirier was fighting this, and Chandler didn't deserve this and you know i think charles Oliver. like i think we both were in agreement that charles would get a different viewing than mike chandler get a different reaction than michael chandler but to the hardcores once we found out that dustin poirier turned down this shot that it was offered to him that he went the connor route i haven't heard much complaining about this fight like it seemed like the opposite it seemed like people are very pleased with the matchup you know, other than Justin Gaethje, there's really nobody else who could make an argument. You know, now that Poirier passed it up, and that makes it even more exciting. Like it's not there isn't like a stain on this fight, and it's just such a good fifty-fifty matchup that it seems like everybody is excited about. And I just get into it. So let's start with Michael Chandler. This guy is such an explosive athlete. Like when I think of Michael Chandler, that's the first thing I think of. Just I mean, look at like what he does though. He said, "Oh, that's the first time I jumped off the cage before," and he's like, "Oh yeah," and I just went like. 20 feet in the air and did a perfect like pitcher perfect landing. Yeah, like pitcher perfect uh backflip. Like one of these ones that guys do backflip and it's kind of like sideways and stuff. Like that was like the Olympic judges would have been happy of that one. Uh he's just a great incredible athlete. He fights in a high, classic high guard, keeps his right hand which is one of, you know, that's like a pistol connected to his to his head. Darts in and out of range very well. Throws tight, hard, hard strike. Has KO power in both hands, as we saw when he, you know, he starts. I mean, I should, 
I don't want to just use the example of the UFC, but obviously it's the one that's most fresh in my head, the starching of Daniel Hooker. But I mean, this is what he's been doing his whole career. I mean, this is Michael Chandler. Um, he generates power because of of three things. One, he's built like a brick shit house. I mean, look at him. The guy's got muscle on top of muscle. Two, he and I really I shouldn't say three, really two, two points I want to make. He keeps his base often with him. He brings we talked about this last time. He brings his legs with him. And then that's what they keep talking about is how he shifted. Like he he threw one set, he threw one punch really just to change his legs while well, he's you know switching from his front leg now to his lead leg to turn the the hook instead of a lead hook it's a like coming from behind where you're generating more power off that back foot putting yourself more in position and that's what he did on daniel hooker and that's what he does a lot in his game and when he does that he'll he can completely knock you out that said he's a pretty and i, I said this last time when we were breaking it down he's a pretty hittable fighter for an elite strike you get elite fighter and while we just pointed out that he can generate power by bringing his base, he doesn't always bring his base. A lot of times he'll do a lunging shot where he lunges. It's kind of similar to, and I'm not comparing them totally, but style-wise, Kevin Aguilar. Kevin Aguilar, what I was talking about, lunges into his punches. He can do that. And when you do that, you leave yourself the counter, which is what, exactly what Pitbull put him out with. Pitbull... Saw the lunge shot and finished with his own counter. I think it was a counter right shot that he put up uh, Chandler with. Like that is that is a problem. He um, other things I like about him that he does work the body. He understands that he he understands that um, you know that's putting money in the bank to you know it's like saving up for college. You put it put it away. Uh, he doesn't check leg kicks though. I mean we saw that the Brent Primus fight. It was leg kicks was an issue. But he is a great wrestler. He's an elite wrestler. He's got great injuries. He's so strong. He gets on your hips. He's just going to pick you up, slam you. Um, but one thing that's disturbing, and it's been a long time since we've seen him in a five-round fight, his output has gone down in five-round fights. I'm not, And when I say that, I'm not talking about the early Michael Chandler and Bellator against Eddie Alvarez wars. I mean, like, more recent fights. Um Move over, you know, when I'm talking about like Benson Henderson fights and stuff like that. Uh, move over to Charles Oliveira. He's a good athlete. I wouldn't say he's a great athlete, but he's a very good athlete. He's very, um, he moves well. Yeah, you know, he's not explosively moves well. But what I, the thing to about him is to me is just growing. He's growing. One in his confidence. You can see the way he carries himself in the cage now. His confidence has grown. He's growing in his striking, just his striking ability. And he's growing in his power. Like we've seen him, like Jared Gordon, like just starts him one shot. Like that wasn't ever Charles Oliveira's game, and now it's actually becoming a frequent thing of his game. He's got a very Muay Thai style to it. He's he's very aggressive to land a shot. He's willing to eat a shot to land what he believes is the bigger shot. Works behind a solid jab, and he's got good timing on his counters. Nice check left hook. He, he, I love that he still will step in elbow, step in knees. He does stand up kind of tall, and, which obviously is an issue against uh, someone who's a big power puncher going over the top. Uh, but he's got good leg kicks. Also doesn't check kicks that much, but that's because he's more stepping forward. If you throw a kick at him, he'll catch it, take you down. He, he's a, yeah, he, he can do entries and take you down like Tony Ferguson, but he's also 
willing to do Tony Ferguson. Sorry, I meant opposite of Tony Ferguson, where he'll like actually blast through double. But he also has a little Tony Ferguson movement where he'll shoot just to kind of get a scramble going. And he's like one of the all-time greats at catching something in, in weird positions. Uh, he historically will not fight off takedown defense or, or doesn't fight enough. Because if you take it down, he's he's extremely comfortable on the ground. He probably won it there anyways. I mean, he's got the most submissions in UFC history. If he doesn't submit you, he's very good at sweeping you. If he's on top, good ground and pound, can submit you on top. But also, we've seen Cardi be an issue for him. We haven't seen him go deep into fights. So as far as prediction, I don't know a single person, whether it be media members, whether it be you know people in the sure dog forums, people in I mean I, I said there are some, but mostly there's not there's not many people that have a confident pick in this fight. Like it's so many people like, well, this is as close as a pick I can make, or it's just as hard as I can go. And I feel that I feel the same way. Because I feel like anything can happen. And, and that's not always the case. When we break down the film, we're like, oh, this is kind of the routes. These are the best keys to victory. I I don't expect that like this. Like if you told me this is an all-time battle, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. If you say Oliveira is just going to pick apart Chandler from distance with you know pressure on back, yeah, absolutely. If you say Chandler gets in the pocket, lands an absolute bomb, and starches uh, Oliveira while he's standing up tall, I'd say, sure. If you told me Chandler out-wrestles Oliveira, I'd go, oh, yeah, I'll wrestle him. Like, a little surprised by that, but... Okay, now I see it. Like, yeah. I mean, he's pressing against the cage. If you told me Oliver, who catches Chandler, who's never been submitted in his career, but Oliver, who has the most submissions, which that to me is, a, I feel like, an underrated storyline going into this. If you told me Chandler catches the submission, I'd go, yeah, okay. So because there's so many different outcomes, that makes me so in, excited about this fight. And I think we're going to get a little bit of everything. Like, everything we just said, I think we're going to get. I think... I think Oliver is going to pressure Chandler back and, and land some good shots from the outside and, and the step-in knees and the kicks. But then I also think Chandler is going to respond with big power shots that's going to, you know, catch Oliver clean and Joe and Joe Rogan's going, oh, that's a big shot. And and I think Chandler might get a takedown. And then I think Oliver might sweep him. And I think we might get some fun scrambles. And I think we get everything. But the only thing I haven't seen anybody say, or that, and I haven't looked obviously, obviously everywhere, but I haven't seen many people say is, I haven't seen many people say that Oliveira is going to land the big shot. Oliveira is going to be the one to land the one shot and put someone out. And I haven't seen people talk about that how often Chandler's been hurt recently. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it's not going to be Chandler that lands the big one punch shot or the one kick or one. Shot. I think it's gonna be Oliveira. I think Oliveira is gonna catch Chandler's chin. I think he's gonna put him out. So give me Oliveira by third round TKO, and he's the new UFC lightweight champion of the world. Oh, there you go. Uh, I love your breakdown. I agree with your uh, overall kind of uh, view of the fight. One additional dynamic I see is I think Oliveira will take control of the tempo the rhythm, the speed, the pace, the distance of this fight in much the same way he did against Ferguson where this, there were no safe places for, for Ferguson. Like Ferguson found himself feeling like he is used to making other people feel. I think Oliveira will be able to do that to Chandler. And I think because of that, 
uh, Chandler will be the first man to wear down as the, the rounds go on. I think this makes it to the championship rounds, but I think it's going to be a case of Oliveira like continuing to roll downhill and build momentum as Chandler fades. I'm going to pick us to see something we have never seen before in MMA competition. We're going to see uh, the first time Michael Chandler has ever been submitted. Uh, give me Charles de Bronx Oliveira by taking the back of an exhausted, beat up Michael Chandler in the fourth round and applying a rear naked choke for your new, the 11th man to wear the undisputed UFC lightweight title, Charles de Bronx Oliveira. Ben. Uh, you know what we talked about Pitbull being, you know, unbearable on Twitter. Yeah. You know what? I was just thinking, like, yeah, if, if Chandler wins, it'll be unbearable. Even if he Chandler loses, Oliver is gonna have to beat him in under sixty one seconds. If oh, he beats yep. him if he beats him in sixty five seconds, like Pitbull's gonna be like, oh, I did it quicker. You know? <laughs> oh, a- absolutely. Uh anything else on, on this one or or should we uh should we wrap it up? Yeah, I think we should uh, wrap it up and uh, and say, I think regardless of what happens, I think it's such a nice story for either fighter who wins the title come come Saturday night. Just absolute redemption for both guys. I think that's such a great storyline. It really, really is. And whoever wins, we haven't heard the last of the guy who loses. You know. Uh, that's it for the Sherdog Radio Network preview of UFC 262, Oliveira versus Chandler. Uh, thank you for listening. Make sure to check out the live recap show either through the Sherdog sure front page or on the Sherdog sure YouTube page uh, right after the main event. I will be live on site. I mean, I might chime in with some information uh, that Keith can pass on, but he will be uh, uh, hosting Lev Pizarski, a Sherdog sure writer, as your guest recap uh, co-host, and it should be a lot of fun. Until then, enjoy the fights and have a great week.